Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com The people who classify themselves as white are not happy with their appearance. Now they've taught us to be unhappy about our appearance. You see, but they're very unhappy about their appearance. I think there's an article in the handout about a woman who was, white woman who was in Hawaii. And she said that being around the Hawaiian people and the Asian people, and she said she was tall and white and pale. She said she felt like a freak. And so then she started getting involved in genetic science. And right now we're talking about a new scientific tool that could disrupt the fundamental nature of every kind of life on Earth. Your body contains 37.2 trillion cells, and within each is a copy of a code consisting of more than 20,000 genes and billions of strands of DNA. This code is your genome, and it determines everything that makes you, you. What if you could modify that code, bring back extinct species, eliminate hereditary diseases? That is precisely what molecular engineers and geneticists around the world are working on. George Church is one of many using a revolutionary gene editing technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which allows you to modify DNA sequences. Paint this picture of what the future looks like as a result of CRISPR in your eyes. <laughs> I suppose the wildest description would be that you have some 150-year-old people that look like they're 20-year-old riding on a mammoth. Is that wild enough? <laughs> 
Well, the idea of a youthful senior citizen riding on a woolly mammoth, as you just heard there on CNN, may still be far from reality. But the prospect of editing genes, the building blocks of all life on Earth, has got a boost from a new technology called CRISPR-Cas9, or CRISPR for short. The advance is a disruptor with excitement building around the endless possibilities it can create, from curing genetic diseases to creating crops better adapted to climate change, or even developing more humanoid pigs whose organs can be transplanted into humans. Along with a promise, CRISPR is also causing concern. The technology could allow us to change human DNA, not just in an individual, but in all of their future children and grandchildren. That's raised the question of whether we as a species are prepared for such an awesome responsibility. And among those saying we need to better understand all the potential implications of CRISPR is one of the scientists who worked on its discovery. Jennifer Doudna is a professor of molecular and cell biology at the University of California, Berkeley. She is the co-author of a book called A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution. Jennifer Doudna is in Berkeley, California. Hello. Hello. Good morning. As one of the people involved in discovering CRISPR, how do you feel when you hear the excitement in the voice of someone like Jacqueline Skinner? Wow. I mean, I just feel so honored to be part of that revolution in technology. And the opportunity to help people is uh, really why we do the science we do. Well, we heard a bit of an explanation from CNN there in that clip at the top. But how would you explain to a layperson what CRISPR technology is? You can think about DNA in our bodies being the the code that uh, the code of life that really controls who we are and what we do and our health and and, and disease states, and having a technology uh, that allows changes to be made to that code and not randomly but very precisely at desired places in uh, the DNA that could, in principle, correct mutations that cause disease. I think that's really what CRISPR is all about. So it, 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 allows, it allows you to edit little bits of the DNA? That's right. It literally is a programmable tool. It allows scientists to tell this tool where to go in the DNA, where to make changes, and then introduce either disruptions to the DNA or, in some cases, actually replacing DNA sequences with uh, sequences that are desired, for example, to correct a disease-causing mutation. You tell a story about an entrepreneur you call Christina, who met with one of your colleagues. What happened? Yeah, so uh, this was uh, an interesting meeting with uh, someone who was interested in using the CRISPR technology in humans. And in fact, she had the idea of having herself the first what she called CRISPR baby, you know, the idea that you could actually use gene editing in human embryos to create uh, human beings that would have desired genetic traits. And what happened? Well, it was a very, very strange conversation, as you can imagine, for me, um, because it was clear in that conversation that she was serious about this. And uh, even though I knew that, you know, uh, this would not be possible today for many reasons, both regulatory but also technical, it was a bit, a bit alarming to know that uh, she might think this way and that that might 
be the way that uh, others would think too about opportunities to perhaps uh, make money or or uh, garner attention by doing something uh, very radical like that. This is why you want to not only talk about the science but the ethics. You want to have you want us all to be having these bigger discussions, huh? To really think about this. I think it's hugely important. And I think it's also a wonderful opportunity to get people involved in discussing a really exciting um, proverbial moment in a way in science, you know, something where we're seeing this transformative change in what we can do with genetics. And so this is a great moment to invite people to learn about this, understand it enough that they can engage in a meaningful discussion. Hmm. Some people have talked about bringing back the woolly mammoth. We heard that clip off the top. Even creating a winged dragon with CRISPR. Is that possible? Well, there's possible and possible. Uh, (laughs) Possible or probable, maybe, is the way to put it. I think, you know, the thing about gene editing is that it opens the door to doing things that have never been done before. So people have talked about, for example, the idea of creating a unicorn, you know, putting genes to make a single centered horn into a horse. Um, Is that possible? I think, in principle, the answer now is yes. And, uh, you know, could it happen immediately? No, for various technical reasons. But I think this is one of the reasons people are so captivated by it, is that it just really does open the door to things that we've never been able to even really contemplate um, before. Well, let's talk about using CRISPR on humans. What is the promise of CRISPR when it comes to disease? Well, I think, you know, it's it's fantastically exciting to think about a technology that allows correction you know, of DNA sequences that would otherwise cause terrible disease. And I hear from people that have genetic disease in their family virtually every day who are, you know, very excited about about the potential for this to, to really have an impact on their health in the future. I think that's, you know, clearly is tremendously exciting. Mm, and how close are we to actual treatments or cures through that? Then? Well, I think it's important to appreciate a couple of things. First of all, the technology is clearly very powerful, as we've heard. Um, however, it does require introduction into cells to work. And so I think one of the big challenges ahead for using this in people is being able to deliver the the gene editing molecules into cells or tissues in a, in a person. And this is why I think, and I think many people would agree, that, you know, one of the the most likely first uh, targets, clinical targets for, for gene editing is, is going to be uh, blood diseases, for example, sickle cell disease. These are diseases where uh, we understand the genetics. Uh, there's a single gene that needs to be fixed or, 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 uh, or repaired. And we can get access to blood cells by taking them out of a patient, doing the editing, and then putting them back into the body. And so you can imagine a path, a clinical path forward faster than for something like Huntington's, where, you know, you would actually have to think about how to introduce uh, gene editing molecules into the brain. Hmm. It's quite extraordinary, though. As I listen it to is. you, yeah. <laughs> and so I just want to ask: There's different kinds of gene editing. There's germline and there's somatic. What's the difference? Yeah, very important to to know to understand that. So somatic means editing in cells that are already fully developed. They're they're already a liver cell or a, a, a skin cell or a blood cell, and there's no possibility of transmitting the changes that are made to those cells to future generations. 
the difference uh, between that and germline editing is that in the germline, we're talking about making changes to sperm or eggs or early embryos. These would be genetic changes that could be uh, transmitted to future generations. And so it's a, you know, when we talk in the book about the power to change human evolution, that's really uh, ultimately what could happen if there was widespread editing of the human germline. Do you think we should be doing germline or heritable gene editing on humans right now? I would say no. You know, I think that this is a a technology that, you know, is still in its uh, infancy in many ways. We're learning about it. I think the opportunity to use uh, the gene editing uh, tool to understand better human development, I think that's exciting. But I would uh, caution against using it clinically any time in the near future because we need to understand it better. And and maybe even more importantly, we need to have time to discuss it as as a society. What are the implications of that kind of use? In many parts of the world, including Canada, it is currently illegal to do any human germline editing, including on embryos that will not be grown into babies. But some ethicists think that's a mistake. And that includes uh, Chris Gingell. He's a research fellow at the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. Listen to him. Well, look, we, we miss out on an important uh, resource, a resource that we can use to do a lot of good. If we stop now because of irrational fears about what might happen in the future of technology, we really miss out on a good opportunity to learn more about human development and a, an opportunity to develop a way to uh, treat genetic disease. We alter the human germline all the time. Every time we have children the natural way, Uh, We introduce random genetic mutations into our germline. So it's it's not a question of whether we should change the germline. We're doing this all the time already. It's the question is, how do we change the germline for good? How do we do the most good with this technology? Um, And I think this technology could be key to reducing suffering and to increasing human flourishing. So Jennifer Doudna, how do you respond to that idea that we have a moral imperative to go ahead with germline editing research? Well, I I remember uh, the very first meeting that I convened in the Napa Valley, this was already a couple of years ago, to discuss the question of human germline editing with a small group of scientists. And um, at one point, somebody leaned out across the table and said, you know, there may come a time when we would consider it unethical not to edit the human germline. And that sort of made everybody take a breath and say, well, yeah, that's a different way to, you know, think about it. In my own view, I, I think that Clearly, you know, I mean, I think I agree with what was just said. You know, clearly this is a a really exciting technology and we have an opportunity right now to use it to really help people and also to really understand better our own biology. And and, uh, I think but, you know, hand in hand with that goes a huge responsibility to use this in a fashion that, you know, in the end uh, does lead to benefits uh, to human beings and also brings the uh, community of people around the world along with the scientists, you know, that scientists are not rushing ahead, but that we're actually engaging with our our neighbors, our, our parents, our kids, our, our friends, and so that people understand what's happening. And we avoid uh, sort of the feeling of, of uh, being, you know, railroaded or, or just, you know, sort of not included in a technology this important. I think that would be a, a mistake. Oh, is a voluntary, free-spirited, open-ended program of procreative racial deconstruction. Everybody just got to keep fucking everybody till they're all the same color. 
Damn. Next Monday marks the 50th anniversary of Loving versus Virginia, the Supreme Court decision that overturned the laws that remained in 16 states prohibiting interracial marriage. The plaintiffs were Richard and Mildred Loving. He was white, she was black. They couldn't legally marry in their home state, Virginia, so they went to Washington, D.C., where it was legal, and then returned home, where they were soon arrested. Here's Mildred Loving in a 1967 report on ABC News describing what happened in 1958 on the night the sheriff came to arrest the Lovings in their home while they were sleeping. The night we were arrested, mm-hmm. um, I guess it was about 2 a.m. And I saw this light, you know, and I woke up and it was the policeman standing beside the bed. <laughs> and he told us to get up, that we was under arrest. And anyway, they carried us to Bowling Green and uh, locked us up. And in January, they had the trial. And they uh, told us to leave the state for 25 years. The Virginia courts upheld the law banning interracial marriage, but the Supreme Court decision striking it down was unanimous. Chief Justice Earl Warren's written decision described Virginia's ban as designed to maintain white supremacy. My guest, Cheryl Cashin, is the author of the new book, Loving, Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy. She's a professor of constitutional law and race and American law at Georgetown University. She clerked for Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court justice. She says she wrote the book from a personal perspective as the daughter of civil rights activists and a descendant of slaves and slaveholders. We'll talk about how her parents' activism affected her childhood a little later. First, we'll talk about the Loving decision, which overturned what were known as anti-miscegenation laws. Cheryl Cashin, welcome to Fresh Air. So you tell the story behind the word miscegenation, a story I never knew before. Do you want to explain how the word miscegenation was created and for what reason? It was created as a political hoax. You know, dog whistling about race mixing has been going on since the time of Jefferson. You know, when Jefferson was running for office, you know, people dog whistled about the fact that he, um, you know, allegedly, and now it's proven, you know, had a relationship with Sally Hemings. But this fear of amalgamation, that was the term of art uh, before 1864, the fear of, of, uh, white people mixing with blacks um, and, you know, the idea of we need a, a white racial purity and we need to protect it. Um, that was part of the political machinations. And so in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, when Lincoln um, is, is debating, and, and this is what brings him on the national scene, one of the things that Stephen Douglas really pushed at him was he claimed that because he Lincoln was anti-slavery, he was pro-amalgamation. Um, and they're trying to scare off the working whites from supporting the anti, this new anti-slavery party, the party of Lincoln uh, Republicans, and then when and and uh, fortunately Lincoln, who's very deft, was able um, to, to 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 win and become the president despite that. Um, and then when he's up for re-election, um, these guys come up with this political hoax. They come up with this pam- pamphlet. They make up this name, mis- miscegenation, miser to f- putting together two Latin words, miser to mix. Uh, genus race, miscegenation, and they basically put out a fake pamphlet 
that is supposed to be it looks like a a a pro mixing document uh, endorsed by the Republican Party. And um, for about a year, some people fell for this. Lincoln, fortunately, did win despite that, and it's exposed as a hoax later. And, and the book, the booklet is called Miscegenation, the Theory of the Blending of the Races Applied to the American White Man and Negro. And you describe it as advocating the creation of a superior race through the mixing of the races, and that this was like fake stuff designed to scare people into thinking that this was actually... Lincoln's agenda, that this is what Lincoln's he agenda, to do, right? To create a superior race through the mixing. By of mixing, races. right. You know, your daughter's going to end up being, being in bed with a Negro if you vote for Lincoln in the Republican Party. Okay, let's get to the actual story of Richard and Mildred Loving, the couple who were the plaintiffs in the 1967 Supreme Court case. Tell right. us a little bit about the background of Richard and of Mildred. First of all, they, they come from a little hamlet called Central Point, which um, had existed from colonial times. From colonial times, there were three populations in this little rural farmer's hamlet. Um, there were Native Americans, blacks, and poor whites. And just like in colonial Virginia in, in the 1600s, you know, the, these people were used to working together. And so Central Point had a long history of mixing. And there were a lot of mixed race people. Um, uh, Mildred Loving herself, her, her maiden name was Jeter. Mildred Jeter um, came from a family that claimed mixed um, black and, and Native American Rappahannock uh, heritage. Um, and uh, Richard Loving was an interesting guy. Um, you know, he first meets Mildred by because he comes to Mildred's house to hear her brothers play bluegrass music. So he liked hanging out with her brothers. He had um, Negro or colored friends, his two best friends. They drag race cars together. Um, he worked, his father worked for one of the largest um, um Negro. I'm using the term that was, a, you know, the term used for black people at the time, um, the largest ne- Negro landowners in the county. And so they were used to mixing despite virulent um, Jim Crow segregation that forced um, uh, Mildred to go to very inferior colored schools and Richard went to um, the better resource white schools. Well, you know, he falls in love. They fall in love. Um, and uh they, you know, <laughs> you fall in love, people have sex. Um, she got pregnant. He did the honorable thing. He loved her and he wanted to marry her. And um, I think somehow he knew he couldn't marry her in Virginia because of the 1924 law. And so they go off to D.C., get married and come back to live in in Virginia. And uh, the 1924 law rendered them felons. And a very um, uh, uh, willful sheriff um, comes and drags them out of their bed at, in the middle of the night after they've been married a couple of weeks and uh, throws them into jail. Mildred spends five days in jail, and, and that's the beginning of their nine-year journey just to live as man and wife in Virginia. So Richard gets out on $1,000 bail, but she stays in a rat-infested jail cell for five days, while she is several months pregnant, no less. Right. 
So um, the Lovings got a lawyer, and the lawyer basically told them to negotiate a plea. So they did. They negotiated a plea for a one-year suspended sentence on the terms that they would agree to leave the state. Right. And they were banned from returning for 25 years. Right. So they moved to Mildred's cousin's house in Washington, D.C. And um, why do they end up going back to Virginia? Well, the, these were country folks. They, they, they missed the country. They, they missed their, their, way, their rural way of life. They missed their family. They missed this community they were so tied to. Um, I think particularly for Mildred, uh, she found um, D.C. and city life um, miserable, and and uh, she didn't like that her children ha- didn't have a place to play. And you know, one of her children got hit by a car, and that seemed to be the last straw. This woman was the most reluctant of agitators. Um, I, I think had her son had her son not got hit by a car, she may not have um, finally got the gumption to do something. But um, that's why. And they kept going back and getting caught. Uh, going back to Virginia and getting caught by just the Just vi- to visit, and they mm-hmm. would get caught. I think they got caught and rearrested twice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said she was the most reluctant of uh, agitators. Her husband was perhaps even more reluctant. They both were. They both were. Um, I, I think they found their voice, you know, as, as um, once they, they got lawyers, uh, ACLU lawyers were representing them. And um, they started talking to reporters. I, I suspect I don't have any independent information on this. I just suspect that the lawyers um, um, uh, told them that it would help their case if they started talking to reporters. And so, you know, there's wonderful footage of them. Um, and, and you see them starting to talk, particularly Mildred. You see her starting to talk not just about what this means for her family, but what it means for other people as well. Um, How did they end up bringing their case to the Supreme Court? They're not people who thought in those terms. They were not activists. No, not at all. They were quiet people who really just wanted to be left alone. And I think Richard in particular was shocked that it was going this far. He, he, as I understand it, he kept having hope that the guy who um, entered the 25-year banishment would just come around and just let them come back in, after a few years. But um, the ACLU lawyers perceived that this could be big. But uh, by 1967, I think uh, the court was ready to hear it, and um, the Supreme Court of Virginia handed them, uh, the lawyers in the case, on a silver platter an opinion that it was it was pretty nasty in its in its language. I mean, it basically condoned uh, white supremacy and and it condoned this idea of racial inferiority of people. And by 1967, particularly, you know, D- Chief Justice Warren at that time, um, he he had evolved a lot from the time when he was a, an attorney general in, in California. Um, so this, this, you know, it all comes to a head and just Chief Justice Warren in the case says, you know, these laws are a relic of slavery and an instrument of white supremacy. And, and he says it aloud in, in, with capital letters. Um, and he's basically, I think, trying to steer the country toward accepting that we can't have a country 
based on this idea anymore. It's, it's time to put this to bed. So, you, you know, your book is called Loving Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy. And Chief Justice Earl Warren's decision in the Loving versus Virginia case actually mentions white supremacy. He writes that Virginia's ban on interracial marriage was, quote, designed to maintain white supremacy, unquote. Um, do you know if white supremacy was ever, like, named that way in a Supreme Court decision before or even after? That was the first time and the, and the signature time when the Supreme Court of the United States says explicitly, this law is about maintaining white supremacy. The first time they used these words to name what the Civil War and the 14th Amendment should have defeated, right? There are a couple of other times where a justice might have said this, but this is the Supreme Court and a unanimous opinion written by Chief Justice Earl Warren, right? Um, and I think that is the, the signature victory in that case. Monday is Loving Day, and I think we could all use a little of that, but <laughs> Loving Day marks the anniversary of the United States Supreme Court decision in Loving versus Virginia that declared all laws banning interracial marriage unconstitutional. Richard Loving, who was white, and Mildred Loving, who was black and Native American, were married in 1958 in Washington, D.C., but when they returned to their home state of Virginia, they were arrested under that state's law, which criminalized interracial marriage, if you didn't know the history. At their peak, at least 41 states had similar laws designed to preserve white supremacy. By the time the Lovings were married, 16 states still had these laws on the books, 1958, making interracial love and marriage a crime until the Supreme Court declared such laws unconstitutional. You know Jamie Floyd, attorney, legal analyst here at WNYC and the local host of All Things Considered for the station. She was born and raised here in New York, has a personal connection to this story, and she joins us now to talk about the 50th anniversary of the Loving Decision and a new project that she's launching on Monday here on the station on love, race, and identity in Trump's America. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Brian. And, you know, I think I wrote that part of that introduction, and I'm going to correct myself. Okay. And this is a mistake that's yes, often made about the Loving decision. Uh -huh. uh, so when the Lovings were married in 58, uh, two years after my parents were married in 56, uh, there were 22 laws on the books. By the time the case came down, there were 16. And, in fact, by the when the court took the case, this is how quickly the country was changing – uh, Bob Dylan, changing. Uh, there were 17 laws on the books when the court took the case at the beginning of 67. One of those laws was repealed in the course of that year. Uh, and by the time the case came down, 16 laws still on the books. But you are so right, 41, at least 41. By some historians count 42 of these laws on the books at the peak uh, of of their uh, existence. Virginia's was one of the most insidious, if not 
the most insidious. It was called the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. Uh, and, and actually, there the first one was passed in the 1600s. They were then repealed and then reinstated after the Revolutionary and War. And do you want to reveal your personal connection? Sure. To my parents story? were married in 19. 19- 56, and it uh, it was at a time when 22 states had these laws. They had to travel to three different states to find a doctor who would give them the blood tests. States had different ways of enforcing the laws, and the laws varied from state to state. And by the way, although the South was uh, the most draconian, and those 16 states that the Lovings confronted were all in the South, it was a majority of Southern states by the year 1958, let's not leave out California. Let's not leave out Arizona. Let's not leave out Texas, my mother's home state, uh, which was one of the states uh, enforcing these laws when my parents were married. My mother was from Texas. My father was from Indiana, which was the, uh, the the cradle of the Klan in the Jim Crow South. A lot of people don't know that. So they were married in 1956 and, and faced horrific discrimination, even after they were able to find a doctor courageous enough to give them the blood test in Chicago. And they got the blood test, and they were married. Uh, and they stayed married for nearly 60 years mm. until my father's death in 2015. Who was white? Who was black? Now, very different from the Lovings, and that's a really significant question, Brian. Uh, my father was African-American and part Native American. My mother was white. Uh, and and their love story is, is, I think, a truly hopeful sign for what America can be. Uh, but I don't think the Lovings would have prevailed uh, had not Richard Loving been white. Uh, and, and many historians of race uh, point that factor out. The Lovings were humble people. Uh, they, they, were, they were poor people. They grew up in a part of the South. Uh, they were childhood sweethearts and grew up in a part of the South, a rural hamlet of Virginia where race mixing was common going back to colonial Virginia. So this was nothing unusual to them. Uh, they really just wanted to live their lives. They weren't marching on Washington, even though lots of other people were. Uh, they weren't uh, terribly well-educated people. But uh, they sensed that this was just wrong. They weren't seeking to change the world or the laws, but just in fact, they did. Marriage and their family and their life. They, they had the perfect surname. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> right. God, you know, that's why they chose Sally Ride to be the first woman in space. <laughs> right. And, right. you know, you could think of a million other examples. Um, did you suggest a minute ago that it was politically easier to get this through the Supreme Court? If the man in the couple was yes, white? Yes, I, 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 I'm not suggesting it. I am stating it. Uh, it is, and I believe still is, was and still is, uh, easier for a white man to be in a relationship with a black woman than it is for a black man to be in a relationship with a white woman. And when we talk about interracial love, cohabitation, sex, procreation, uh, the relationship between the black man and the white woman is the relationship feared most by white supremacy. Uh, and, and the Racial Integrity Act, let's be clear, that was rooted in white supremacy. It had as its purpose white supremacy. Uh, and, and, of course, first and foremost, it forbade the marriage of any white person with someone of another race. Uh, it defined white person as someone who, quote, has no race whatsoever of any blood other than Caucasian, uh, and, and as you pointed out, Brian, in the intro, you can't go to another state and then come back to Virginia and have 
uh, a valid marriage. Yeah. Uh, and these people were lying in the bed, in the privacy of their own home, in the middle of the night, newlyweds, and the cops came storming in and, and arrested them and threw them into jail, and they were charged. These were felonies uh, in, in most states and in Virginia, certainly. Uh, so completely violative of uh, the, the marital home, as the court pointed out in Loving versus Virginia, the right, fundamental right to marry. Uh, but I think as a political matter, the fact, that, the fact that Richard Loving was a white man, a humble family, this was a humble family, uh, that these were poor people, uh, and that they just wanted to get on with living their lives, uh, that made this much more palatable to the court and to the American public. And Jamie, your project that you're launching on Monday, Love, Race, and Identity in Trump's America, is really focused on the children of interracial couples, right? Yes. I mean, we want to keep the conversation going. It's called the Other Box Project. Uh, it's a year-long exploration about what it's meant over the course of these 50 years to check that other box. Uh, so we think of the U.S. Census first and foremost, but it's not just there. Uh, it's in health care. When you go to the doctor and you ask your race, are you black? Are you white? Are you Native American? Uh, what we used to call a- a- American Indian, and, and many still do. Uh, are you Hispanic, which is not a race. The census tells you right up front, Hispanic, not a race, but we still want to know, are you that? Mm-hmm. Uh, we or check- other. Or other. We check the other box. So what does that mean in a society that has failed to fully reckon with multiracial identity? What does it mean to have racial classifications at all? Uh, Even though there are some good reasons to have them, uh, why do we have them? And what does it mean for those of us who check more than one box? And by the way, Brian, you could only start checking more than one box on the census in the year 2000. That's a new thing. Uh, And it's the fastest growing category in uh, in American life, on the census. More uh, than if, one, check all that apply. Oh, check all that apply. Rather than being lumped into other if no simple category works for you. Exactly. Do you like it? Uh, do I like it? I, 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 if people really care about me, because uh, this project is not about me. I'm, I'm interested as a journalist, as a reporter, uh, as the curator of this project in hearing other people's stories. But for me, I'm African-American. And one of the things we've learned in this in in the run up to this project, we started in 2014, is that it's very much a continuum of time. So if you go back to people like myself uh, and and people are surprised when I say I'm African-American, you can go on the WMYC website right now and look at my picture and you might say, really? Uh, But I'm African-American. I was born in 1964. Civil Rights Act passed that year, 65, the Voting Rights Act. Loving was I, f- three years. I didn't, mm. I didn't, I wasn't legitimate in, in 16 states, states yeah. right? Uh, so, so those of us, Barack Obama, white mother raised by his white grandparents, but considers himself, has said very boldly and plainly, African-American. But when you get to people born in the 70s, certainly in the 80s, and you come to the 90s and, and people born after the year 2000, definitions of ourselves start to change. And and the reason for that, Brian, is that we didn't even have the language uh, when I was growing up. We didn't have multiracial and biracial. Uh, we were struggling for language. Colored was a term applied to us. We didn't like it. Mixed race, okay, that kind of worked. Uh, mulatto? No, mm. right, no. Mm. Uh, I was called things like half-breed, uh, mixed nigger, uh, half-nigger. Uh, I know this is uh, WMYC, but I know also the list of words that we have to cut for, and this isn't one of them. Uh, I was called Oreo cookie. 
Uh, that was a kinder word that was used for me. This was in New York City, Brian, mm. here in Greenwich Village mm-hmm. and on the Lower East Side. Uh, so you can imagine what was happening to kids in, in Virginia who were mixed race or uh, in Alabama or Mississippi, the places where the Racial Integrity Act, uh, that held on in, in Virginia till 1979. Uh, so to find your identity, it was much easier for people born in 54, uh, 64, uh, uh, even 74, to just uh, embrace African-American identity, what we then called uh, black or black power even. So in framing the Other Box Project as love, race, and identity in Trump's America, Mm -hmm. are you looking for people in this other category, this mixed-race category, to play a certain role in our divided nation? Yes, yes, yes. Well, what I found in watching my parents and their 60-year love story was their ability uh, to share with me a conversation between each other and across racial lines. And so what I've seen, uh, especially across generations, so our project has people from ages 90 all the way down to 14 years old. And the ability of those people who grew up in families like mine to have conversations with people of all races and also all generations about uh, race, but also class, uh, gender identity, identity, broadly speaking, uh, in this really divisive time, I think is phenomenal. And, And Brian, I conceived this project when Barack Obama was still president. And I thought, wow, we have this biracial multiracial family, this, uh, the first, I mean, he, he, we think of him as a black president, but he is really from a biracial family. So that was what we originally conceived the project to be as he was getting ready to leave office. But now with President Trump in office and a resurgence of neo-nationalism, uh, I think it's critically important to have these conversations. Say, say brother, uh, can I get some of that water, man? Just, just a little bit, you know, maybe like a drop or two. You, you got all the water in the world, brother. Just, just let me get a little bit, please. That's, that's all I can get. I mean, I see, I see you over there shining with all that water, man. I just, I just need a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard out here. Genesee County officials say they are shocked and disappointed that a longtime land bank official used racial slurs when talking to an independent journalist. The derogatory comments have led to the resignation of Phil Stare. ABC 12's Randy Conant has been following this story all day long, and he joins us now with details. Randy? Angie, on May 26th, Stair was driving to a restaurant with Chelsea Lyon, an environmental activist and independent journalist. She began to secretly record the conversation as he vented. Well, Flint has the same problems as Detroit. They pay their bills. Believe me, I deal with them. Stair also complained about deadbeats moving into the south side of Flint. When the conversation appeared Sunday on the Truth Against the Machine website, Stair offered his resignation, saying he was deeply sorry for what he had said and for those he had offended. I think that uh, it's in all of our best interests that that he's moved on. It's uh, disturbing to me. I know it's disturbing for the board of directors. It just frankly has no place in an organization that serves the public. Wildman said if Stair hadn't resigned, she would have fired him. Protesters showed up at the Genesee County Board of Commissioners and said how shocked they were that someone with Stair's mindset was a part of the land bank. I was extremely troubled to have um, a public official make those kind of statements 
about the residents here in this community. And not only did he say I'm about African American, but he said about other um, folks as well. Stair was a sales manager for the land bank and had been with the organization for about 16 years. Some commissioners say it may be time for more sensitivity training for county employees. I was very disappointed to hear the allegations against him. Now, Lyons, who made the recording, says there are more audio files coming. She says what was released is just the first wave. Randy Cohn at ABC 12 News. A recent report from the Urban Institute comes to a pretty shocking conclusion. States with more black residents have less generous welfare benefits. Vermont, for instance, about 1% black, gives TANF, or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, to 78 out of every 100 poor families. Arkansas, about 15% black, gives TANF benefits to just 7 out of every 100 poor families. Oregon, like Vermont, about 1% black, gives a single-parent family of three in poverty $506 a month. Mississippi, 60% black, gives under half of that $170 per month. The study concludes if the poor look like the people pulling the purse strings, traditionally largely white state officials, they will get benefits. If they don't, they won't. Heather Hahn is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and one of the authors of the study. And Heather, I know you have some conclusions that are outside the question of race, but have I largely got your conclusion right when it comes to race? Yes. So we found that state policy decisions on TANF are significantly related to race. States with large African-American populations, all else equal, have less generous and more restrictive TANF policies. You say all things being equal, but are they? You know, is it possible that a state that gives out more money per poor family has fewer families in poverty? And since these are finite block grants from the federal government, is it possible poorer states have more demand for the benefit and so to meet that demand have to give fewer benefits? Well, one of the factors that we looked at was the child poverty rate in the state. And we looked to see if the child poverty rate was associated with different policy choices. We also looked at whether the uh, the share of the state legislature that was Democratic or Republican had an effect on the different policy choices. And those variables had some effect on some individual policies. But when we looked across the board at the policies, the consistent pattern was that the share of the African-American population was what was associated with the less generous and more restrictive TANF policies. And that's holding constant the child poverty rate and the political factors and other demographic and economic factors in the state. And there are other differences as well in states with a larger African-American population seeking help. There are often more restrictions. Yes. So if we take a specific example of the consequences for a family that does not comply with the work requirements, for example, most states, if a recipient does not comply with the work requirements, there are what are called sanctions or consequences. And often that starts with a benefit reduction that then 
escalates to the closing of the case or termination of all benefits if that noncompliance continues. There are some states where the first time someone does not comply with work requirements, the initial sanction is to close the case or terminate all benefits. And what we found was that if you look at the average state, this isn't any actual state, but a a state that had all the average characteristics uh, of the nation, there was a a 44% likelihood that that state would have this harsh initial sanction where all the benefits are cut off the first time someone does not comply with the work requirements. If you took a state that was the same in every respect, except that the African-American share of the state population was five percentage points higher than average, then instead of a 44% likelihood of having that harsh initial sanction, there'd be a 54% likelihood of having that harsh initial sanction. So that's just one concrete example of how that plays out. Well, there's other examples of differences. Oregon, again, um, a state with a largely white population, helps people get off welfare, tries to get them a job, pays their wages for up to six months when they're off welfare. Mississippi, which has a work requirement, doesn't help them get a job. So there's sort of a, a divide here. And twas always thus. We're reading a terrific piece in The Atlantic about the history of this kind of assistance. And originally it was called mother's pensions. This was the precursor to welfare, early 1900s. They mostly went to white women, widows. And in fact, caseworkers at the time denied these benefits to African-American women because they felt African-Americans should be working and that was beneath these white widows. I mean, this is well-documented. Yes, there is a long history of racial differences in social welfare in this country. Um, Providing welfare was a local responsibility and very subjective. And so to a large degree, welfare was available only to white widows or others who were deemed deserving or morally upright. And over time, and then especially in the 1960s, the federal government gained an increasing role in providing welfare. And with that, established objective eligibility rules that opened access to African-American families in poverty. Yeah, but even then, uh, it's just so fascinating. Then-President Johnson launching this war on poverty knew that he had to go and have a picture taken with a white family, a poor white family, to launch the PR campaign because he knew that if he did it with a poor black family, he wouldn't get traction in Congress. That's right. So what happened is under these objective rules, more African-Americans sought and received assistance, and so they were a larger part of the welfare caseload. And that contributed to a backlash that contributed to the welfare reforms of the 1990s that gave the policy control back to the states. Yeah, this is under the Clinton administration. So we see the control going back to the states, and you seem to be tracking that that kind of, I don't know what you'd call I mean, it feels like prejudice, plays out in how benefits are handed out. Right. So there is a stereotype that the typical welfare recipient is African-American. And that's not true. In fact, about one-third of people receiving TANF cash assistance are African-American. But that misperception influences how people think about who is poor and why and shapes their thoughts about the policies that should address poverty. So those policies in some places are influenced by people's racial attitudes. We should say there are more African-Americans seeking welfare benefits relative to their number in the population. 
That's right. So African-Americans are disproportionately represented among welfare recipients, just as they are disproportionately represented among people living in poverty. But they are not the majority of cash assistance recipients. Well, but this is such a vicious cycle because that could be, that truth could be, more African-Americans seeking benefits could be because they get stuck in this cycle as opposed to the white poor who, as I mentioned, are helped out of poverty in many states. Right. It's important to recognize, though, that the state policies themselves are race neutral. So within a state, the state policies apply to everybody equally. But what we see is that the effects of the policies are not equal. Right. Congress is now considering block grants for other kinds of benefits. As you do this research, what's your thinking? TANF is a cautionary tale about what block grants can mean. So based on what I see in TANF, I would predict that if we were to block grant other programs, we would see similar results in that fewer families would receive assistance. And when we look across the nation, we would see racial disparities in the provision of that assistance. And they're considering block grants for things like SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. These are food stamps, largely for children and others. Um, Heather Hahn, I know you had other discoveries in the Urban Institute research, a comparison between Texas and California, for instance, that doesn't have as much to do with race. Right. So states have different philosophies and cultures about supporting low-income families. And those may or may not be connected to race at all. Uh, And so Texas, for example, is a state that I call a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps state, where they expect people to support themselves. And it's a place where only four families received TANF cash assistance for every 100 families living in poverty recently. California is a contrast where the state has made a commitment to serving vulnerable families, especially vulnerable children. And in California, 65 families received TANF assistance for every 100 in poverty. So it's hard to quantify or or measure those philosophies. But when states have the flexibility to set policies, as they do under block grants, state philosophies will prevail in determining what those policies are. And this underscores what we said at the very beginning. It has nothing to do with, you know, one state maybe having more demand for welfare benefits than another, because Texas and California are pretty much, you know, big states. Yes, with high poverty rates. Yeah. Heather Hahn, senior fellow at the Urban Institute and co-author of the new study, Why Does Cash Welfare Depend on Where You Live? Heather, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm not sure anymore Just how it happened before The places that I knew Were sunny and blue I can feel it deep inside This black nigger's pride I have no fear when I say And I said every day Every nigger is a star Every nigger is a star Who will deny that you and I And every nigger is a star 
a Thornton woman turns to Denver 7 for help tonight. She says she's been harassed several times and feels like no one is helping her. Even worse, she feels trapped since management won't let her out of her lease. Our Denver 7 Sally Mamdu spoke to the woman who says the harassment has escalated to racial slurs. The woman tells me the first time she got a racially charged note outside her door, she felt uneasy about it. But the second time she received another racially charged note like this one, she says she felt unsafe. But the apartment complex where she lives doesn't see it the same way. At first, Timber Lodge Apartments felt like a place for Allison Butler to call home. It seemed like a nice apartment, so. So she moved in at the end of April, but says five days later, her new home turned into the last place she wanted to be. It started with people pounding on the door. And when Allison would come to the door, no one would be there. Then Allison says twice she found racially charged notes at her door. What does it read? Um, it reads on it. This is the second note. So um, you got a note before? Yeah. What did it say? Um, it read in words don't belong. Allison reported the notes to the Adams County Sheriff's Office but says the deputy couldn't do much for her because there aren't surveillance cameras around. She then reported the knocking incident to the apartment security company which told us they confronted the people and gave them a verbal warning. What the verbal warning entails, the security company wouldn't say. Then Allison went to the leasing office, hoping to break her lease. And their response was that I could buy out of it, which means I could pay two months rent um, to get out of the lease, even though I'm being harassed. But what was even a more shocking response for her is when she was told nothing more can be done. And their response every time is that they cannot control what happens in the hallways. We've reached out to both the leasing office and the company that manages Allison's apartment and have yet to hear back. For now, Allison says she lives in constant fear and hurt. I'm going to school to be a therapist. I truly want to do good in the world. Um, so the fact that I could be reduced to an does hurt. In Thorn, Sally Memdu, Denver 7. White girl, going through my mind. Sarah Jackson and Julie Tweet. White girl, Julie Jackson and Sharon. Help me on. The more I see, the more I do. Don't tell me it's a fire car. That's right. He don't want to know what's going on. It's Saturday morning, and I get a text from my producer, Catherine. It's a link to a BuzzFeed commentary titled, White Women Drive Me Crazy. The story's by Aisha Mirza, a mental health counselor from East London, whose mom was first-generation Pakistani British, and her dad was born in Egypt. Her stepdad is white. Aisha's article recalls a moment when she stepped on a white woman's mat in a yoga class. The woman looked at her like she was offensive. And Aisha suddenly remembered all the looks she's gotten like that from white women all her life and how they made her feel. The piece went viral. Reading Aisha's commentary was a revelation for me. I realized all the times white women had looked at me like that. From the white lady playground monitor in kindergarten who used to follow me around and reprimand me as often as possible 
to my first roommate after college, the blonde sorority girl mm. who used to sing off-key as loud as possible and regarded me like I was an alien fungus. I know plenty of white women who aren't like that. Catherine's white. When she sent me the article, she texted, Will you please never let me become this? I didn't say anything, because that wasn't the point of the commentary. I decided to talk to Aisha Mirza myself, and she said she didn't write the piece so white women would feel ashamed and change. She wrote it so brown and black people would know that other brown and black people experience the same thing with white women and feel the same way about those looks. And those feelings are valid. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Anotherhood Short. Yeah, so the essay I wrote starts in this yoga class that my friend who was visiting from London made me go to in the first place. So kind of a little nervous anyway, and accidentally kind of moved towards this woman's mat and stand on it. (laughs) (laughs) And she just gave me this really striking look. She looked at me in this way that I kind of describe as like fear, disgust, like horror, like real horror. And it made you realize something about how you felt when you were a kid, right? I guess, you know, to use a popular word right now, it was triggering, you know, like triggered all of these memories and moments in my life where I've been othered in different ways or kind of made to feel uncomfortable, but in these really quiet ways, you know, like the looks, the smiles or the weird hugs or the weird touches, you know, like these really quiet ways in which these dynamics are reinforced And I felt really angry about it. And I don't feel angry that often, so I really leaned into that. (laughs) Why do you think you were angry if you'd experienced it before? Since I've been living in New York, which is like nearly three years, I've made a real effort to surround myself with other people of colour and other queer people of colour. And there's like a kind of incredible community here. So I hadn't actually been like in a white environment like that yoga class was. And I hadn't really dealt with like a look like that for a while. And then suddenly this white woman's looking at me and I'm like, no, <laughs> this must end here. So what do you think that look means? What, where is it coming from? It could mean a lot of things. And there are a lot of different variations on that look. You know, it's, it's very like nuanced and deep, which I think is part of the reason why it's so hard to pin down. And I think part of the reason why people were relieved that I tried in this essay, you know, because they are looks and... It's really hard to have the confidence to say, I know why you're looking at me that way. And that's, I think, why they're so sinister. I mean, I don't actually like to focus like so much on that moment, given the scope of the essay, mm-hmm. because I don't know why she was looking at me like that. Yeah. You know, and that's not exactly the point. To point a certain is, extent, it's about your perception, right, of the look? Totally, yeah, which is valid. And that's the thing, you know, like, obviously, a lot of people were very happy that I wrote this piece. But then a lot of white women specifically were like, how dare you judge this woman's look? You know, you're not inside her head. You don't know what she was thinking. And that's just really not the point because everything is racialized. And she looked at me in a way that was triggering because I realized that there have been so many of these racialized moments in my life. And some of them are much more easier to say, like, that is racism. And she might have been a germaphobe, as, like, so many white women are, like, emailing me to tell me, you know? They're like, no, 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 like, she's not racist. She just doesn't like germs. Like, don't you understand, you know? And that's kind of the gray area that I'm really interested in looking into. Let's talk a little bit about the reaction. It It was a big reaction. A lot of people read it. I think the editor emailed me yesterday to say that 
there had been over 1.5 million views at this point, and that was like a lot for a personal essay, I think, on that website anyway. A lot of emails from people of colour, queer people of colour, just saying, I think, that they felt seen for the first time and that they felt this kind of specific experience that they've been having their whole lives. Maybe they'd never realised that it had been upsetting them in the way that it has, and to see it written down and, like, made tangible was really helpful. A lot of white women emailed me to thank me for it too, which was fine. I got I got one really great one from a white woman, actually, that was just, like, really short, and she was like... I was so mad at you when I was reading it, which is, I heard a lot about that, about how mad white women were reading it, which she said, I was so angry because I was like, how dare this person judge me on the colour of my skin? And then she said, and then I finished reading it and I realised that I've never had to worry about that in my life. (laughs) And I appreciated that. I appreciated, like, being taken along her thought process there. I think white women are really struggling to own the fact that they have power and privilege, right, and that they can hurt the people around them and oppress the people around them. And it's really simple in that way, you know, and, like, white women are, like, not the only people who are in that situation where they're, like, a very oppressed group of people who can also oppress others. In the same way that, like, me as a brown person, you know, I'm not black and... Therefore, I have this privilege. I have the privilege of being light-skinned. I have the privilege of being, like, racially ambiguous. And if I'm not careful, I can use those privileges to oppress people around me and to, like, oppress black people and to oppress dark-skinned people. And that is uncomfortable. But I think it's, it's a discomfort that a lot of white people and a lot of white women, which is what I was writing about, are really unwilling to own and step into. These are the 80s, man. It's the Cosby decade. America loves black people. Uh, We have been uh, covering the Cosby trial and uh, providing legal analysis every day of the trial. Uh, And so here with me today, we missed yesterday because of of the Comey stuff. So just kind of catch up here with me today is our legal analyst, Dean Johnson. Welcome back, Dean. Hey, Brian. Nice to be here again. All right, let's uh, kind of take a look at what's happened so far. Uh, yesterday, uh, Andrea Constant, who was the alleged victim in the case, uh, her mother uh, her mother testified, and she talked about calling Bill Cosby. And um, I'll tell you what's interesting, it, a couple of interesting things, and apparently like a real emotional moment in, in court yesterday, is she talks about how she's talking to him on the phone, wanting to know what he did to her daughter. And Andrea is, is listening in on the other line, unbeknownst to, to Cosby. And then Cosby goes on to tell her mother that Andrea had an orgasm during this thing. Oh. And, and apparently you heard uh, that when, when the mother said that, the, the, they say that everybody in the courtroom just gasped out loud. And that you heard Andrea go, I, 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 and hang up the phone. And then she continued, you know, on with Cosby. Uh, she broke down and cried. The mother broke down and cried. A lot of tears. Lot, every, apparently everybody who's testified so far has broken down in, in, in tears except for Andrea Constant. And I'm wondering, is that kind of an emotional display? How can that not affect the jury? Yeah, everything ex- affects the jury. And the jury's going to be told at the end of this thing that they can look at not only what people say, but how they say it mm-hmm. and their emotional pitch towards uh, uh, towards their testimony. And apparently Constant was uh, was not all that emotional when she testified. There's obviously somebody under distress, uh, as anybody in this situation mm-hmm. would be. But something like that, that's so spontaneous and unrehearsed and not part of a court proceeding, mm-hmm. really, in, in my experience, sticks in the minds of the jury. Now, which way it's going to cut, um, hard to tell because juries 
look at things in, in, from all sorts of different angles that you don't anticipate. By the way, speaking of which, now we, we've talked about this a couple of times with John Burris and with Jim Hammer mm-hmm. when they were here, and that is that um, so far again, you know, yesterday was day four, and Camille Cosby is not in, in court. You guys all said that's not going to make a difference to the jury. And I've read now three or four different articles that are pointing out that she's not there and that there is concern that the jury is going to go, why is this wife not here unless she knows he's guilty? Yeah, you know, it, it, uh, you always have to think of a trial as a bit of a show. Uh, the optics are very important, the visuals. Uh, it was, uh, scientists say that 80% of what we communicate is nonverbal. And the fact that he has a family, if any of the jury knows about that, he has a, a wife and four daughters, and it was even reported that his television wife, Felicia Rashad, was going to be there. Yes, she was. And, there, and there, there, there seems to be very little support from, at least, in fact, no support from his real family, and people could read it that way. Now, we don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. it may be that Camille is ill or... Um, the daughters are otherwise occupied, but I mean, what is Come on, what, otherwise what, yeah, occupied? Yeah, what is what is more important than when your uh, when your father is on trial in in effect for uh, his freedom for the rest the of his life? life. Yeah, yeah, seventy-nine. Yeah, yeah, and 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 juries read into that. Let's put it this way: it would be really helpful if he had a lot of family support. Uh, we don't know that it's going to be so hurtful that he doesn't, mm-hmm. but um, it, it would be great to have them there if you're the defense team. Now, the prosecution also read uh, that 2005-2006 deposition uh, that uh, that Cosby gave in the Constan case uh, in the in the civil. Uh, there was a, the civil suit that was filed after they decided not to, after the DA at the time decided not to press charges. And uh, there have been excerpts from that that have been published. And he, he mentions getting quaaludes to give women he wanted to have sex with. And some other things that they read yesterday as he talks about how there is, quote, an area somewhere between permission and rejection. And uh, then when talking about what happened, he said, she did not stop me and I wanted to go. Now, is that, I mean, is that damaging or is that, you know, indicative of, of anything? And oh, I should go on to say, too, that, that uh, in his version of the story, you know, she said he gave her three pills and said, these are herbal, they'll relax you, these are your friends. And his version, he says he gave her one and a half Benadryl. And after taking the Benadryl, she immediately wanted to have sex with him. Now, I take Benadryl every night. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm not I've... kidding. I take Benadryl every night to go to sleep. And I have not, that's not happened to me once. Yeah. I've, you, taken you, Benadryl. You know, I, I've, got, I've got severe allergies, too. And I've taken a lot of Benadryl. I've never had that reaction. But uh, get, getting serious about what is really a serious subject, I... I wonder about the strategic decision on the part of the prosecution to use that deposition. I don't know that it's all that helpful to them. Cosby is not going to testify, and a lot of this deposition is really self-serving. He, 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 yeah, he, it is. Sort of, he, what the passage you just, you just referred to uh, suggests that maybe he had a good faith belief in consent. I mean, that would be his story. And, mm-hmm. and we're never going to get to cross-examine him. So, in effect, um, the prosecution is introducing what his testimony probably would be, would be. if he were going to take the stand. So here, here's something that I've, I've, I've got a question for you about, and that is um, the prosecution's reading excerpts from that 2005 deposition that he gave under oath that was sealed. And he gave, sat for the deposition under oath and said he would be truthful because the DA had made the agreement with him, not in writing, but I guess a handshake agreement that he that no matter what he said, he would not be prosecuted. Right. All right. So in this deposition, he says 
that he had several sexual contacts with Andrea Constant prior to this. She says, and it's said in her testimony, that the only time was when he drugged and assaulted her. Now, if this deposition is is supposed to be damning, and there are some things in it that are damning, when you especially the the, the one excerpt that everybody published and went crazy with was that where he mentions that he bought had gotten quaaludes in the past to get the women he wanted mm-hmm. to sleep with. I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, can can a jury cherry pick, we believe, this part of the deposition, but we don't believe that part of the deposition? And if he's lying, why would he lie? Because he didn't have to sit for this deposition. It was part of the deal that was made, you know, to avoid prosecution. Am I making sense? Yeah, uh, and and it's it's a typical problem. I I mean, you see witnesses having inconsistencies all the time. We've Mm -hmm. seen it in, in this trial. Um, and there's a jury instruction that says, all right, if you find that somebody has made a false statement, either on the stand or otherwise, mm-hmm. that's something that you can consider in determining their credibility. So if Cosby lied about one thing, that undermines his credibility. Okay. But the, the judge always cautions the jury. Um, that's just one factor to consider. And that's one factor you consider among others. And uh, you, you need to look at the evidence as a totality and see if um, if parts of the witness's testimony are backed up by other evidence, for mm-hmm. example, if their manner seems that they're truthful and maybe this was an honest mistake. All of those are things that the, the jury's wide open to consider. So, yeah, you can believe some parts of somebody's testimony and reject and disregard the, and, others and disregard the rest. Yeah. Uh, so it's a day or so before the defense is expected to get the case. Uh, today they put on a drug expert to talk about uh, what the effects are of, of quaaludes. And again, he's claim, he's denying it was quaaludes, saying it was Benadryl. But I've never seen blue Benadryl. Have you? Uh, uh, not that I can. No, I've, I've uh, seen white Benadryl. Yeah. I've seen pink Benadryl. I've yeah. never seen blue Benadryl. Uh, and they're also putting on uh, a, an expert on women who've been assaulted to I- I explain why a woman would, would have inconsistencies yeah, after, and, it, and why they don't come forward. Yeah, and that's tying the bow on the package of the case. This has been a real dance of testimony, impeachment, and rehabilitation. And the big thing you've got to do to rehabilitate both witnesses is explain that when you're sexually assaulted, especially by somebody who's rich, famous, and powerful, your brain goes into overload and mm-hmm. says, you know, what's happened here is inconsistent with everything I knew about this man before. Sometimes the brain just represses those memories or changes them or mm-hmm. or explains them away in some way. We see that all the time in domestic violence situations and, and in this situation, mm-hmm. which is another power relationship uh, w- where a woman would be dependent upon this man in a lot of ways and, and want to like the man. Uh, yeah, uh, behavior changes. It's not the way you would normally you would expect people to behave. Now, he has said uh, publicly in the interview that he gave to Sirius XM that he was not going to testify. And his attorneys had previously said that he was not going to testify. But today, uh, his lawyer is saying that nothing's off the table and he may testify. So two questions for you, Dean. First, um, do you think that the prosecution has put on a strong case thus far? And in your mind, have they proven this beyond a reasonable doubt? That's number one. And number two, if he were your client, would you put him on the stand? I should make this three questions. <laughs> would you put him on the stand? And third, does a jury want to hear the defendant say, I didn't do this? Has the prosecution made a case? Yeah, they've made enough of a case so a jury could find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
but of course that's always up to the jury. They they will get to that jury and if it's you know if it's supported by sufficient evidence. I don't think it's a terrific case. Mm-hmm. Um it's maybe, you know, an average case for a regular sexual assault uh trial, but this is not a regular sexual assault trial. The second question is really easy. Would you put this man on the stand with this state of the evidence? No, no, no. Um when I was in the prosecutor's office, we had um, a saying that our case, the prosecution's case, always gets better when the defendant takes the stand. That's mm. that's true in you know times ten in this case because you've had this deposition read. There's a lot that the defense can bring out of that deposition that would be the same as Cosby's testimony. It would be essentially the defense that they put on. And when Cosby takes the stand, he's going to be under cross-examination at some point. I don't think he's going to do well. And the real danger is that Cosby will say something that will, to use the phrase that we use in court, open the door mm-hmm. um, to character testimony and maybe bring in as rebuttal witnesses some of those other 60 or so women that came forward. I mean, that's the great fear you mm-hmm. have as a defense attorney. Now, I was reading someplace so that one of the, one of the, the, the problems that the, the prosecution could have is if he gets on the stand and he's the charming America's dad that everybody knows and can charm the jury. Yeah, and, and he probably thinks that he can do that. The toughest clients to have, and I, I've had clients like this, are the very wealthy, very powerful, and I hate to say it, men um, who are used to talking their way out of everything and charming their way out of everything. And it's really, really hard to convince those guys to keep their mouth shut and that things will be better if they just don't say anything. Um, and I think Cosby's one of those. It may be very hard to keep him off the stand because he thinks that Dr. Huxtable can get up there under oath and just charm the pants off the jury. Was that was there a pun there? Uh, you know, <laughs> I I heard it when I said it. Okay. As I was saying it. I'm looking at you going, did you mean to say <laughs> I want to be a cop. Some shocking video out of Jersey City. A police chase ended in a crash and a fire. An innocent man caught fire, but it's what police did allegedly while he was on the ground that has officials calling some of them for their firing. Jay New York's Catherine Craig's in Jersey City right now with this controversial video and Kat, the aftermath as well. And, and Michael, absolutely. The innocent man, first of all, he will undergo surgery a little bit later today. The video that he's in, it appears that officers are kicking him. And we want to warn our viewers, it is extremely graphic. First of all, that fiery crash happened right over here where that truck is passing by, right by that utility pole. Police had been pursuing one man who crashed into another, and that innocent victim was on his way to work. We want to take a look at the video. You see the victim on fire. He is 28-year-old. Miguel Feliz desperately trying to extinguish the flames on his clothing. Officers approach and with guns drawn in the video, it appears that they begin kicking him. At least seven officers were there. This happened Sunday night. Police pursued a different man who, according to city officials, was suspected of being involved in a shooting. Officers opened fire on that suspect during the chase. He ended up crashing into Feliz on Tunnelly Avenue near North Street, and both cars erupted in flames. A witness described to us what he saw. They didn't help him. They started kicking and grabbing him with with the legs and I don't think they treat it in the right way, um, and that's not how you treat any human being in this world. 
And a different take from the police union, releasing a statement in part saying, as it should be, this entire incident is being fully investigated. Taking swift action isn't always elegant, but this video clearly shows the officers acted quickly to extinguish the flames and pull this man out of harm's way. The Jersey City Mayor also uh, releasing his own statement. We interviewed him as well, Michael. He is calling for the officers involved to be fired. Also, possibly, Michael, to uh, face criminal charges. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 10th, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, views, uh, if you have uh, commentary from the news clips we just heard uh, feel free dial in the number 641-715-3640 the code 564-943-POUND press star 6 if you would like to participate that number again 641 715 Three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, before we get to listeners, remind folks we are listener supported counter racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, when you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested, supported us uh, eight plus years. Uh, I hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy uh thanks to the folks who've got things from our wish list at amazon.com under gus t renegade uh, i even uh i put i told folks i have been uh in the same house with a uh at first it was a pregnant black mom now it is a first time uh black mom with a young toddler uh or not toddler young infant and uh i put uh baby wipes on there just because seeing the the volume of baby wipes that having a uh, infant go through like is stunning but I put baby wipes on there uh, for her specifically and uh, nearly as soon as I put them on the list they arrived at the door I was stunned Uh, but thanks to all the folks who have uh, supported us it has been grand and uh, she sends her thanks as well moving forward uh, some of the things I wanted to touch on uh, before Uh, We get to the callers Uh, last week at the end of the program. uh, I said, oh, yeah, by the way, listeners, you all can contribute for the compensatory call in. I meant to say that at the beginning, uh, before we got to the callers to really encourage folks to do that, I would really uh, like to see uh, what the sound clips sound like when it is exclusively listeners making the selections we did have a number of listeners uh, and generally do have listeners contribute uh, different articles and news reports uh, over the week podcasts even uh, a lot of great uh, information uh, but i didn't uh, get to emphasize it 
as much as I would have liked uh, so that it can be exclusively uh, listeners and make sure that I get a high volume uh, of audio. And I did not make sure to give adequate description uh, when I do news clips for the compensatory call in. I only select news clips for the past week. So everything that you just heard, uh, these are things that were reported from Sunday or between Sunday, June 4th and today, Saturday, June 10th, everything that you uh, just heard. And the reason that I make it exclusively for just the past seven days uh, is because the system of racism, white supremacy is by far the dominant force in terms of motivating people, uh, motivating individuals classified as white, why they get out of bed in the morning, what their life is supposed to be about is maintaining white power over everyone they say is not white. And in particular, terrorizing black people as they maintain global white power. Now, um, with that being the case, that is explicitly talked about in a variety of ways in the news on a regular basis. I don't have to go back through the catacombs and dig out things that happened 200 years ago, 300 years ago. If you remember from last week, there was a news clip. It was talking about a black female professor. Uh, she canceled her visit. She was going to come to Washington state to do a lecture. She canceled it because she was terrorized so much uh, by racist race soldiers, whites. And uh, they said at the beginning that there have been, you know, centuries of, racist laws and customs put in place that are responsible for oppression of non-white people. And that is bogus. And white people know that that is deliberate deception. In my view, uh, there are things that racists like Jane Elliott and Timothy wise and Randy Blazak and William Willimon, uh, and the numerous other whites <laughs> admitted racists and the rest of them. There are things that they have done in the last seven days, last five minutes that we can focus on. And I think that is important. So for people that are making uh, contributions for the compensatory call in uh, news clips for the last seven days, so we'll try it again uh, for next week. So that would mean news clips, things that happen between Sunday, June 11th and Saturday, June 17th. Uh, so if listeners, if you can send in uh, and it's, it's gotta be something with audio. If it's a video, no problem. Uh, if you can, uh, if it's an, a video and you're able to make that an audio clip yourself, now that is a plus. But if you don't know how to do that or you don't have time, whatever, if you just find the video of the news clip that happened between Sunday, June 11th and Saturday, June 17th, drop it to my email until justice at gmail dot com and we'll set it up for the news clips for next weekend's compensatory call in uh, with that. Uh, I, this week's, uh, segment was kind of a mashup of some of the clips that listeners submitted. Some of the clips that I picked out a little bit of both next week. I will not pick anything. It'll be exclusively listeners. Uh, I didn't even include, I had, uh, which is the case for most weeks, even just restricting to the past seven days. I generally have an abundance of clips. There was a clip on prison abuse in North Carolina. It's about a 10 minute clip that I did not include. And this clip, very important. I was even uh, questioning myself as I thought about this, like, wow, did I not include? They were talking about how the 
uh, guards in North Carolina, how they would put hot sauce on the inmates genitals and not just any old hot sauce. They would put hot sauce that was so intense that the guards would wear surgical gloves and they didn't say just any type of gloves. They said explicitly surgical gloves when they handled this hot sauce to place on these inmates genitals. I don't, or I do know why there was a logic as to why I did not include that clip this week, but I did think it was hugely important. And that's the case most weeks. As I said, you can't play everything. I generally find way more things than I can play, but that was one that that did not make it for a variety of reasons, even though I am kind of questioning, man, I maybe should have played that one. Anyway, um, when I heard that, even though I didn't play it, delectable Negro. Actually, that wasn't even the first thing that I thought that I thought of the first thing that I thought of is something I've said on the broadcast for years. I've heard this before. There was a previous incident of, uh, race soldiers, inmates putting hot sauce on black males, genitals, Wellsing moment for sure. Um, but I've heard this before. This is not even a one time, uh, thing. This, you know, must be a regular thing. And then I thought, delectable Negro Vincent Woodard Woo! man if you did not tune in to the book study session for Vincent Woodard you might have missed a book that should maybe be in Gus T's top 10 now there were a lot of points in the book that I did not agree with uh, we tussled about that book for a variety of reasons but wow there are a lot of concepts very important concepts that that book illustrates and that is one that is one of the main premises that racists have a fetish and literally devouring consuming melanated flesh black bodies and you can see this for centuries that is the main theme of the book and putting hot sauce on a black male's genitals didn't include that one I looked back at the things that did get included somehow (laughs) that were responsible for that being left out. I think that CRISPR bit is really, really, really important. Jennifer uh, Doudner, that's the type of thing that I think does not get enough uh, attention. So I definitely wanted to include that. All that stuff about the lovings. I thought it was important just because it's getting so much attention for this anniversary weekend that's coming up, I guess, this Monday. And what they did not mention in the two clips that made reference, they did not mention the age disparity between the lovings that I also thought was extremely important. Um, the racial terrorism, I thought the, the, the welfare disparity, I also thought was extremely important. When we talk about uh, economics, that's something that I've said applies on a local national and global level as the percentage of black people goes up. Public amenities goes way down. White people become much less interested in taking care of the roads or having great public transportation or libraries, public schools, anything. (laughs) Oh, welfare. So you can throw it all in the trash. Once it looks like there's one too many niggers that might be benefiting from these goodies. Uh, But I thought that was an extremely uh, important report. Might even make an effort to get her on the broadcast. The white, in fact, I will stop there. Um, the white women uh, 
drive me crazy uh, report uh, was interesting for a variety of reasons, but we'll leave it there. I'm not going to have an avalanche of commentary about uh, the loving situation or area eight. That's one of the most popular areas of discussion. I'm probably only going to take about four comments. So if you think that's something that you want to talk about, you should make sure that you speak up real early uh, because I know that sort of thing can just dominate the whole discussion. I think that was demonstrated last week and even why we have a rule about not talking about area eight, but I feel like, you know, since I did play two clips on dealing with the subject matter that, you know, I can allow four comments max. That's it. The number again, six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero, the code five, six, four, nine, four, three, pound press star six if you would like to participate if you know you're in a noisy environment uh music or other people talking if you could use your mute button that would be great uh just helps preserve the quality of the broadcast uh you can unmute you know say whatever you need to say and then mute yourself again that would be super appreciated and exclusively for the compensatory call in i request if we could not use metaphors uh, it's been my experience racists they regularly will use metaphors analogies they will make comparisons uh, between two separate entities that are not equivalent they will do this regularly and it's just it is a clever way of practicing deception they do this deliberately often race uh, excuse me victims of racism non-white people we have been exposed to a lot of racists habits and a lot of us we're still learning gusty renegade included frequently we're trying to come to a conclusion trying to formulate our thoughts we will employ a metaphor and hope that that accurately conveys our view most often it causes a lot of confusion and it does not accurately uh, state your view or your perspective Uh, just if we could make an effort to be as explicit direct clear about what it is we are trying to say that would be extremely helpful extremely appreciated uh, i'll prompt about that uh, and i make an effort myself to to be mindful of of not using metaphors uh that said uh, oh and the the last clip that was played about the uh officers in new jersey uh assaulting terrorizing uh a a citizen that was on fire apparently after this, you know, collision and everything. Uh, I think one of our listeners might even have additional details uh, about that situation. We shall see, but we'll go ahead and get to the phone lines. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with the hand up line should be open. Proceed. Uh, hello. Uh, yes, sir. Heard at least two people. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. First time calling to the uh, the show was introduced this show about uh, two weeks ago. Um, I just wanted to admit that I am a, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, a reformed victim. I guess in the uh, Get Out movie they would call it in the sunken place, and it has been a uh, a large reawakening to say the least. I feel as if I've woken up in the Matrix. So I just wanted to uh, call in and say thank you for this. And that was uh, pretty much it. Oh, right on. First time caller. Glad you could uh, dial in. Good to hear from you, sir. Uh, Other folks who 
dialed in. If you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. This is Mohandisi. I wanted to um, talk about the first clip that I heard about genetic manipulation. Um, a lot of that is in order to keep the people we're calling white people, um, the ice albinos, is to keep them alive longer or to keep them on this earth as albinos for a longer period of time. However, it will not work. It's not possible to remain a, a group of albinos for for an extended period of time on this earth. You can do it for some time, but you can't do it for at a certain time. It, it, you will go extinct as a white person, perceptionally. You know, their genetics will continue on within people um, with melanin, but you cannot continue on this earth as an albino um, in large numbers. And what I was wanting to say is the reason, another reason I don't call um, these people white people, like I said before, um, white is meaning God. And in Kiswahili, the word for God and the word for white is one letter difference. The word for God is M-U-N-G-U. The word for white, referring to a white person, or an ice albino, or a European, is M-Z-U-N-G-U. It's the same word. It's just one letter difference. It's that, that, so they, they've been able to colonize all the languages also. Um, but I had uh, three questions, if anybody uh, cared to answer. You know, I, I'd appreciate it. Um, uh, and I've asked it before, the question... I've asked it to a white person, but the question is, when white people are inevitably extinct and permanently extinct, could there still possibly be white supremacy? That's my first question. The second question I had is, what is the time frame that scientists predict that white people will go extinct? Or what is the time frame that you, you predict that white people will go extinct? And then the last question is that is should black people help white people go extinct in the shortest time period, in the shortest time frame possible? Uh, th- those are my questions. If anybody cares to answer, you know, I, I'm I'm interested to know if black people are, you know, even considering white people going extinct. Okay, thank you. Is it okay if I? Answer maybe the first. Uh, do we have people who have not spoken at all? Uh, oh, I want to try and make sure we get everybody at least get one turn, and then if other folks want to add additional thoughts, that's we can do that after everybody's spoken at least once. Other people that have we have not heard from at all. Uh, if you have a hand up, uh, your line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Gus, and to the callers and listeners. Well, I just wanted to chime in on um, you play Mr. Fuller prior to the program starting. And uh, what stood out to me, Mr. Fuller was talking about how um, when white 
when white people get sick of us, they show us um, with mass force and just things that they do to demonstrate how serious they are about white supremacy. And it just made me think about at that moment when I was listening to that clip that you played, um, what it would be like when black people got or non-white people got tired of being under the system of white supremacy. What I, what I am just seeing in my day-to-day comings and goings, and even with me, you know, um, when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you really do something about certain things. And um, I would just, I'm just interested in seeing that day, whenever that day is, when we're really tired of being held under this oppression, um, mistreated, uh, subjugated, and just just dominated by white people, what that would look like. Because white people have no problem showing up. When they're serious, they use all force. And all white people come together on that, um, on that one accord. So um, that clip that you played uh, prior to the show getting started really stuck out to me. And um, I don't know, I just wanted to share that, you know, what that day would look like when black people get sick and tired of being sick and tired of racism, white supremacy. And I will mute my line. Other folks that we have not heard from at all who have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers, listeners. This is uh, The Voice from Florida. Um, I just found it interesting, the clip where um, she was talking about, she just kept uh, referring to uh, Trump's America, and they kept throwing that in there, and I, I found it very funny how they like to isolate themselves when they talk amongst themselves, but when it's out in public and in, in vast, um, in a vast majority of limelight, that they tend to stay on code. And um, I was reading a, a um, I read an article the other day, and they took a poll on the whole comedy versus um, Trump issue. And the, the people, between the investigation that they showed publicly and Trump coming out and doing what he's doing and, you know, backing up his words, and they're not even fought, finding them at fault. They said they're blaming the media. So, you know, they always seem to stay on code when, when it's time to stay on code. And I just found that, like, you know, this very, I don't know, it was just crazy to me. Um, also, I wanted to talk about the apartment racism, um, how just talking about the same staying on code, how the apartment security, um, the office, even the sheriff that she went, like the sheriff's apartment that she went to, they all seem to be on the same code. Oh, when, it, when, it's, when she's going to complain, Nothing is getting done. They seem to just give, keep giving her the lip service and the, the shoo-shoo game. And I, it just, it's just it's tacky, and it's, it's just surreal that even when we go through this, not even the highest authorities are willing to help us. And, you know, it's frustrating. And in a situation like that, you know, uh, she could, you know, basically have, that's how mental 
illness come about, you know, because you have nowhere to relieve yourself, nowhere to be protected, and you just lost. And I, I just felt like that was just crazy to me. And it, it was her trying to ask for her money back, and they didn't want to give it to her. They were basically telling her she had to pay her terrorism way out. Like, it's, it's just real tacky. And it just goes to show you, like, it's, it's sad, man. It's really sad. And um, uh, I was talking uh, the part about um, uh, the the lady, she was talking about how in um, there's 16 states that still have their laws up about the Virginia with their laws up on um, interracial dating. And that still goes on to, to this day because if you guys remember the case, even Paul Mooney had brought that out when he was discussing about racism, how in Louisiana they have laws that will put you in jail once you go outside, you date outside of your race, you marry outside of your race. Even um, the 17-year-old standout student from LeVar Allen from um, Louisiana, he got charged for sex texting um, a female, a white female who shot him the video first, who started texting with him. Her parents end up telling the authorities, and he's facing jail time for it. So it just goes to show you that it's just a bunch of tacky, um, a lot of laws that's just put into place to just keep terrorizing black people with no outs left. And that's all I have, so I'll move my life. Appreciate that, sir. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary you want to share, line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Happy heard. I heard two folks. Uh, the f- person that spoke in first, uh, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, it's uh, greetings, Augusta, the host, uh, the callers and listeners. It's uh, Mark in North Carolina. Um, I actually had a racist joke. Uh, it was very interesting. I, um, I was in the mall uh, yesterday with, uh, with my wife and my mother-in-law, and uh, it, it, they have the, the vehicles on display inside of different areas of the mall, and they may have, like, a sweepstakes or something to that effect. Um, and they actually had a camper at this location. And it was a small camper, kind of like a mini camper. It had, like, a bed inside of it and um, it had, you know, outlets for electric, electrical outlets. Uh, they had um, microwaves, so on and so forth. And um, so we were just taking a quick look at it, and I noticed that a lot of, suspected race soldiers started coming around <laughs> and one guy came up in a hover round with like an American flag t-shirt and he came over and he um he asked my wife he said can he fit in there and mind you I'm about six foot three um uh, weigh probably about 240 something to that effect and um and she you know jokingly responded like oh well yeah you know uh he can fit then he said you sure and then she said, yeah, we may have to, you know, cut a hole in it or something like that, but he can fit. And then, you know, he switched really quickly, and he told his joke. And uh, his joke was as follows. He said, uh, two potatoes on the side of a road, how do you know which one is the prostitute? And he said, you look for the sticker, and you see the one that says, I, the hole. And he laughed, and then he said goodbye, and he rolled off in his hole around. And I thought that that was fascinating. Usually, uh, from me listening to the show, and you know, even if I was to ask a white person, 
uh, for the most part, they would never share a racist joke, but he just did it openly. And I found that really fascinating. And I said, I have to call the cows and share. Um, I didn't get a chance to hear in the clips, but that's all that I had to share. Thank you. Appreciate that. Always dig uh, when white folks speak honestly. Um, <clears throat> the other caller who spoke up simultaneously, uh, we heard you as well. If you had commentary, uh, you should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, Hello? Sir. Yes, sir. Um, greetings to everybody. Um, big victim, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, to that first caller, this is in the sunk that came out the sunken place. Um, I like to recommend that you um, subscribe to Mr. Fox channel and study all the early episodes of the cows. And uh, all your questions about the show will be answered because I I had I had a question about you guys because I, I I was wondering why was you staying up in Seattle, Washington? But I didn't want to just ask you. I said, I'm just going to sit back eventually. If I keep on listening, he's going to give me the answer why he stayed in Seattle. And you did. I started, I found an episode. You said it's less confusion. And you, you know, living around black people, you know, it's a lot of confusion. And, that's what I learned from, you know, by just sitting back, not um, asking questions, just listening. Because once I started listening to the cows, I I was confused and I was I was just coming off of drugs and alcohol, so one I had my mind cleared and once I got once I got my system cleared clean. Um, Everything started making understand. Everything started. I started understanding it because I just finished. I just finished listening to the last chapter of um, Coretta Scott King's um, autobiography. Um, she was her family was really traumatized and. When Doc, when Dr. Martin Luther King was killed, assassinated, I was, I was pregnant. My mother was pregnant with me. I was born in 1969, February. He died in April 4th, 1968. So I was, I probably was traumatized during her pregnancy when Dr. Martin Luther King had got killed. That's how deep this, this, you know, when you, your thinking is when you, she started listening to the cows. And I just want to hit on this real quick, um, Gus in Area 8. I think you'll be real interesting. Somebody, I think they somebody stole your banner um, on uh, Season 5, House of Cards. Listen to the, to the third episode, Gus, and uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Thank you for letting me share. Appreciate that. Um, other folks who uh, have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Other folks who dialed in who have a hand up that we've not heard from, do y'all have uh, commentary? 
Was that someone over there? Oh, I'm hearing speakerphone. No speakerphone, please. Uh, if you know, yes, ma'am. Oh, um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, this is Red from Ohio. Just had a few notes uh, from this week. I went to basically uh, a June. I'm sorry, a Juneteenth festival in in my state, and one of them being things that I've noticed that I noticed from going to the festival the festival was that there were only white uh, race soldiers or law enforcement um, employees or law enforcement agents what have you working working the event and when I had spoke to my sister she had said that in previous years, the event would be a lot larger than what it was. So they have been slowly, as gentrification has spread, they have um, slowly taken away more um, blocks from where the event would be held. Um, That was the first thing. Um, The second thing, to go along with some of the questions, I forgot the male caller, what he calls himself, I remember hearing as far as um, when white people would be extinct, they had said, at least for this part of the world, it would be within, I know they, um, white people have said, as as far as the information that they have decided to share with us, it would be within about a half century or a century or so, at least they've said, as far as the quote-unquote coloring or the darkening of the United States. Another thing I had, I did actually listen to the testimony that um, Mr. Comey had given to the, I think it was the um, Senate Intelligence uh, Committee, and I definitely was able to pick out a lot of, from my understanding, the him practicing racism, as far as him using, as far as him basically putting himself in a victim. Um, status when it came to um, President Trump, how he was saying that he was too afraid to say anything to President Trump when President Trump was saying that he um, basically giving him hints as far as not prosecuting different people in his cabinet. Um, He used the word cowardly, and then he also throughout the whole testimony, basically, he was saying, well, oh, I can't talk about this right now. We'll talk about it in the closed session, which to me made it seem as if, well, I'm only going to talk about it with you. And, of course, I understand you, mainly white people, you aren't going to share it with everyone else. Uh, the la- I'm sorry, two other things. Um, I, uh, I didn't get to listen to the clips, but just listening to... Um, does speak as far as the public amenity, amenities. Um, I've noticed that here in Ohio, until we got um, casinos, our roads were terrible. Lots of different things were, were horrible. But I've noticed that since we've gotten the casinos, that's when they've started to finally um, repave some of the roads, especially in the um, primarily black neighborhoods which I kind of felt like they did not, the 
of course, the whites in power. They did not want to take the money out of the budget to make, um, you know, fix the streetlights or pave the roads. They decided to basically, for all the black people who would go to the casinos, spend their money, they're, they're basically making us black people pay for um, us to have paved roads, have different um, public amenities that we've already paid for in taxes. The last thing that I wanted to share was that I did actually get um, the Man Not book, uh, Dr. Um, Tommy Curry's book on Thursday, and I have started to read it. And the one thing that I feel like is definitely helping me uh, as far as it being constructive is that it's helping me to better understand the plight of black males. Um, at least, uh, I, like I said, I just started reading the book, but it's definitely helping me understand the plight of black males, at least within um, this part of the, the world in the United States. It is actually helping me to be more understanding and to be nicer, not just to the black males within my immediate um, family or just my immediate contact, but also just being more willing to be nicer to uh, black males that I don't even know out in public. Um, and it's also giving me a counter narrative as far as what I have learned or been indoctrinated with when I was in school, because I know that um, when I graduated high school and then in college, I started to develop this feminist mindset and even wanting to call myself a quote-unquote black female feminist, which from now my understanding is that there's no such thing. Um, and just to better help me to understand that feminism is more of a white woman um, I would uh, activity where it's just something to help them have more control of black uh, of black people or non-white people. Um, thank you for allowing me to share, and uh, uh, that's all I have for at this moment. Appreciate that, Red. Uh, other folks who dialed in who have a hand up, if we have not heard from you at all, uh, if you have commentary, feel free. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Awesome, awesome. Uh, this is uh, Ken Steele, and I am in uh, Los Angeles. And um, I just wanted to uh, start out this week uh, my report by um, saying that, uh, you know, there was an act of, uh, um, of uh, I guess, white violence that took place um, in Orlando earlier this week. And uh, initially, um, there were reports that this could have been um, terrorism. Uh, however, the police on the scene indicated that uh, very, very quickly they were able to ascertain that this was, uh, quote, not a situation related to uh, terrorism. And, um, and that was my first clue that uh, it was a that it was a uh, suspected white supremacist um, who was uh, behind this shooting um, that took the lives of, I believe, six people in a um, business complex in Orlando. And um, what further uh, clued me in 
to the fact that uh, this was a suspected racist that was behind this shooting was uh, the fact that um, in the description of the shooter, the news um, seemed to um, be giving excuses for the shooter. Um, they reported uh, the shooter as a, um, a disgruntled employee. And, um, and I, I just, uh, for me, it just seemed like uh, they were um, basically trying to get the readers or listeners or viewers to um, empathize uh, with this uh, mass killer. So that's just something that I noted um, earlier this week. And, uh, and sure enough, um, later, uh, it did come out that, uh, that the shooter in this situation was, uh, in fact, a suspected white supremacist. So, um, you know, basically any time that the news um, will report excuses for um, uh, acts of violence and they are very mum about uh, uh, revealing the identity of the perpetrator of that violence, um, you can be assured that uh, the news is discussing uh, a suspected uh, racist white supremacist. Um, also, I wanted to um, touch base on uh, basically what um, happened with the um, Bill Maher situation and, um, and how uh, there was a tremendous amount of uh, showcasing of victims of racism um, that took place. Um, I was listening to an earlier episode of Cows, and um, on one broadcast, a suspected racist um, uh, gave some information about how uh, victims of racism who are uh, more educated are more susceptible to mind control. And it was just very, very much on display um, in, this, uh, uh, in this situation because the people who uh, were defending um, Bill Maher they are individuals of, uh, or they are victims of racism that you would suspect um, would know better than to uh, defend racists. However, um, it seems like they're using their authority um, and their credibility to just do that. And, um, and I see this a lot um, with uh, people who are um, into uh, the field of uh, study known as uh, African-American studies. And uh, it just, uh, to me, it's very evident by now that um, this particular, ma this major in particular, I think exists solely for uh, the purposes of confusing victims of racism, conditioning them to uh, accepting racism and finding a place within the system of white supremacy that they find acceptable. And on top of that, it gives them uh, confounding uh, vocabulary to use uh, to basically rationalize um, coddling or um, giving excuses for living under the system of racism and doing um, nothing to uh, remove this system. And um, I don't know, it's just, it was very disturbing to see that. And um, I also suspect that uh, in the coming years, um, they are going to replace African-American studies with uh, some form of uh, what they'll call probably intersectional studies, where 
uh, the African American part will play uh, a second role to an emphasis on uh, gender and LGBT um, uh, style uh, identities. So I, I just think that this whole, um, I, I'm just very, very um, leery of uh, these uh, African American studies programs. And another thing is that I think that um, they're also uh, using some of the testimony of some of our more intelligent victims of racism to find out where are um, holes in their system of racism. Uh, and they want to find out what, um, I guess, irks us or what bothers us. And then they can go ahead and uh, amend those areas so that we find our um, current predicament more acceptable and their role in this predicament um, more acceptable and excusable. And um, at this point, I guess I will go ahead and mute my line. Thank you so much for listening. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Oh, well, hi, everyone on the line. Hi, Gus. Um, yeah, no such thing as coincidence, because I was listening to the first segment of um, Gil Scott Heron's book. But prior to that, I was listening to uh, Dr. Curry. And um, I got a little, um, I mean, it, it really hit me in my heart. Just, I mean, I understand the effects, or at least I try to understand the effects that, that, that um, and the things that happen to uh, black males uh, being, I have a son, and I have many nephews and brothers, and listening to what he had to say about the plight of uh, black, ma- black males and the lack of consideration just broke my heart. I just, I don't even understand how black males wake up and face the day. It was so, it hit me so so hard. And just to hear the young sister talk about it and having purchased his book and getting a clearer understanding of all of that and then speaking about feminism and I've never understood the whole non-white females even playing a part in that feminism thing. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if we are so, we have gotten ourselves so confused that all we do is we, we, we only have, think, we only think like white folk. So we do things like them and we behave like them and we act like them. And I'm assuming that's where feminism comes in for a black female believing that um, the same role that a white woman plays is the same role that she is supposed to play when it comes to the treatment, consideration, sympathy, empathy of their counterparts, black males. I just, again, it it hit me so hard. I I cried through the entire program because I could not understand why... um, Sorry. 
sorry. I don't understand why. Okay, I got you. Come back to me. I got to get myself together. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. That is the system of right, uh, racism, white supremacy definitely can take a toll <clears throat> going over the different way that uh, black people have been terrorized. Uh, other folks that are on the line with us uh, who had commentary, folks that we have not heard from, uh, you should go ahead and speak up now. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, um, good evening to you, uh, you Gus, the host, and to the callers and listeners. Um, I'm first excited. What program was she listening to? The lady that was just before me. Uh, I think she said she was. Oh. I know she had said she was going to take a second to kind of compose herself. I oh. think she said she okay. was listening to Dr. Curry, a program with Dr. Curry, where he might have been talking about his new book, uh, The Man Knot, that mm-hmm. just came out. And then I think mm-hmm. she also included some of uh, maybe the first study session from Gil Scott Heron yesterday. She can correct me if I'm in error. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I just kind of missed that first part. So I just, you know, like you say, uh, this system, racism, white, I don't even call it supremacy anymore. I call it white savagery because it is savage and the savages are running it. And it does take its toll because I, I know the, um, well, I just, this, um, I was looking at something on a YouTube, the advice show, and he had did a, a YouTube video <laughs> I had to laugh. It's not funny, but I had to laugh almost like the young lady before we keep from getting so emotional about it. And he tells the story about Kylie Jenner, who orders these clothing from this young black lady who's a designer, goes on her site, orders these clothing, and then takes the girl's clothing and sets up her own clothing company. And then put, you know, set up her site and everything. And then selling this girl's site. I mean, they say the pictures of the models on Kylie Jenner's site is just the same as the picture of the models that the uh, that she bought the clothing from, even down to the shoes. And um, and so that was Kylie Jenner. And then her sister Chloe, Kylie Jenner, she did her second. Her sister Chloe did the same thing to another designer first, and then had her attorney send a, le- a cease and desist letter to that designer. We basically told her, I guess, the cease and desist, you know, with, you know, I guess, accusing Chloe of stealing her designs. But the, I understand both designers have basically receipts from where these young ladies, where these, these <laughs> anyway, where Chloe and, and Toddy have bought clothing from them and then have set up their own, you know, and I, I was sitting up here thinking about the day and it almost probably the tears because I'm just like, how do we fight this? How, how do you steal somebody's clothing designs? I mean, you, you buy them and then take the clothing design and set up your own, you know, your own website talking about looking, look at my, look at my new line here. And you know, it's so, I mean, it's the exact same stuff. So I, I just wanted to put that out there because I said I know when, when I think about this stuff and there are things that I do think about that can get me emotional. So I just want to put that. I just you know pray for the young lady before us and I pray for us all because things are getting worse. We know that the law is not working for us. Uh, one young man spoke about the girl at the apartment and he says like she goes to the sheriff. Everybody's on cold. 
So, you know, only that can say she really probably needs to fight an attorney to break the lease. Let me say this real quick and I get offline. A couple of things about the loving. Actually, I'm just so sick of hearing about this biracial, multiracial stuff. But my only thing was, you're right. They did not mention the age difference. And, and I remember, um, I think it was on a previous show that you had or something in your archives talking about them. And the only thing I could always, the only thing that really stuck out to me was that how does a 17-year-old white boy ends up with an 11-year-old black girl? And, I mean, I know the times, but even still. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Um, oh, wow. Oh, I don't think I have lost my, my thought for loving. Uh, oh, the, the, the story, the, the, the clip about the CRISPR, that to me is, uh, I think you get into, you get into some dangerous territory right there. That to me is just really something that, like where, where the man said, you, you know, you can look at a person that's 150 years old that looks like they're 20 sitting on a, uh, 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 I, what we would call an extinct ele- elephant now, like a mastodon or something like that. And I just listened to that. That That is just, that to me, that's just really frightening. In terms of the questions that the gentleman asked, and he said something about, I guess, the white people, these are my words, disappear, something about would white supremacy be here? And I, as of now, I'm like, yes, because why? It's the only thing that we know. It would It would still be here. Even if they disappeared, um, I guess maybe we might want to ask the form, would it be more vicious because they're gone? Or would it be people trying to come up with, uh, that you look at this system and say it was just so brutal, so savage, you know, let's see if we can change it. But I think that that system would still be here because as of now, that's all we know. And it is global. It is a, it's a global system in terms of how long, you know, I'm not sure. I just, I, I know people, uh, uh, you know, talk about, you know, out, but I also know, too, that black people are always talking about trying to weed them out and believe that we can, I guess, make them disappear by having children with them, which I don't understand that. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I think that was, let me see, I think that's, I think that's it. Anyway, thanks for taking my call, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Appreciate that. Our other caller in Ohio. Uh, we have folks who have not shared at all. If you have a hand up and you have not uh, spoken at all, uh, you should go ahead and speak now. Anyone would be missing? Oh, yes, ma'am. Greetings to everyone on the line. Um, I will have to go back and listen to the uh, iPad of the program. I was not able to catch it from the beginning, but uh, I was working during the police racism and it hadn't occurred anyway. I was wondering if I could share um, something that happened on the plantation yesterday. Let's hear it. Uh, I am, well, I was. Uh, going through training, and it was like a kind of last day, so the environment was a little lax, um, like relaxed and stuff, and um, <laughs> uh, I don't even really recall how the incident got started other than the fact that the like, 
classroom portrait was being led by a non-white male with a white parent, and he would make statements, and he would leave them with, I, what I'm about to say, I can say because I'm half white, it's not racist. Or I can make, I can say this because I'm half black, it's not racist. Um, that started a about an hour long session of people talking. Yes, thank you. I'm not going into area eight, but this, that started about an hour long session of people talking about um, racism and stereotypes. But of course, when you don't have that context. <laughs> of the uh, system that we were under, you just talking, that leaves a lot of room for tackiness. And I saw a great display of tackiness yesterday. Um, just a couple of instances where he was the uh, non-white male that was, like, I guess, the teacher uh, that day. Um, he, he was speaking on his family, had his mother being petrified of snakes and how they had to kill one. And a white female that was sitting beside me, she stated, oh, did you hang it in a tree? And she kind of glanced, like, you know, kind of ignored that for a second, and she said it again, but she... I kind of cut my eye at her. I was looking straight forward, but I cut my eye at her when she said it, and I heard her, like, kind of whisper, like, oh, did no one know why I'm asking that? And so she brings it back up, and she's like, well, I asked, did you cut it, did you hang it in a tree after you killed it? Because it's a warning to other snakes, and it, it can make it rain. I've never heard this before. And I just, I just, look, I, I couldn't even form words after that. Um, another incident was, of course, racist jokes was brought up. Uh, I heard one that I had to look up what it was because they they said the joke but didn't give the punchline, I guess. Um, one of them was, what is a, a Pontiac? Uh, I had to look that up. If you all don't know, I'll go ahead and give the punchline. It, the one I found, at least, it was, poor old nigger thinks it's a Cadillac. Um, it was another one, but I don't recall it. This exact time that it was. Um... Then, of course, a white female, another white female brings up, well, someone actually accused me of being racist before, and she goes into this highly, I, I believe, edited story of how a black female comes in and accuses her of thinking that she stole the clothes that she, she was trying to buy, even though she had a receipt. She accuses her of trying to say that um, the white woman thought she was stealing because she was black and how it made her cry and she was really upset she hadn't ever had that happen to her before. And it was just a, it was an extremely tacky experience. Um, but I just, yeah, it, it was, it was definitely um, interesting. And the last thing I wanted to say about that is, uh, Someone has asked before why why it's important to note that a non-white person has a white parent. And I have been in this classroom for about five weeks in this training session, and I, I always suspected that one of the other people in there had a white parent. Well, that was confirmed yesterday because the guy who was, like, leading the class 
kept talking about he had a white parent and the person, the other non-white male who I assumed had a white parent, but I never asked and um, whatever. He goes, oh, I can relate. So he, throughout this whole entire um, tacky incident, things that he was starting to say explained a lot of his behaviors, um, such as like how he was when the whole racist joke brought up was brought up, um, he said, well, I know you haven't been around my uncle, then you haven't heard all of them. You haven't been around my uncle. And it's just the things that they, they were saying just completely um, validated my mind that it's important to know that a non-white person has, like, it's important if you know that a white person, a non-white person has a white parent because the amount of, just abuse that they must experience on an everyday basis and the fact that they can't, like, just to try to imagine, like, they can't make sense of it because it's coming from people that they're told are supposed to love them and their family. They're supposed to look out for them and protect them and keep them safe and teach them how to um, exist in this world. But the amount of abuse that they, abuse that they have to go through um, is just, the effects of it, I don't think, unless you are that person, and even if you are that person with a non-white parent, a non-white person, I don't think you really can understand. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to share that. Uh, I will definitely go back and listen to the archives. Thank you. How wacky. Mm, mm, mm. I think that question uh, was asked on a compensatory call in last year, uh, if memory serves. Uh, I think good old Puff, uh, she asked that question, why is it significant that uh, a non-white person has a white parent, which I have concluded it is significant, they're still a victim, but that's just can be uh, pertinent information uh, to help you get a better understanding of why things are happening. But uh, wow, at the training session, no less fascinating workplace racism every thursday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific if folks have commentary they want to share on workplace racism every thursday but wow that is uh fascinating i would have been jotting down uh notes fevers and at a training no less wow Whew. quite a bit uh other folks that uh, yes, sorry. And then you hate it when we say we're done and then we come back. (laughs) I know. I wish I could have been able to record or write down or anything while it was happening. But we were not allowed telephones, like any cell phones. And we don't have paper, no pen, just computers. (laughs) I don't have all the details. I I wish I did. Oh, my goodness. I would have played it for you all. But, yeah. Sorry. Mm. Wow. Workplace racism got to be vigilant. It seems like there will probably be more environments like that where either they do not allow you to have a phone or don't allow you to write things down. So it might be uh, might be a quality investment uh, for the other little gadgets that they're coming out with where you can have uh, like a MP3 recorder or a video recorder on a pen uh, or your glasses or earrings or, you know, lot, watch lots of you know little innocuous things that you could easily have with you uh, in those sort of environments and you would still be able to record uh, information so you can have an accurate log of whatever happened racist jokes all of it uh 
folks, uh, if there are any folks that we missed completely, if there's anybody we missed who has a hand up that we have not heard from at all, because we only have about 40 minutes left. The sun is still uh, bright out here uh, on the West Coast. It's only about 8.20 p.m., so it's bright and lovely. My favorite time of the year, June in Seattle, where the sun is out until about 10 p.m., uh, but for uh, that throws me off in terms of the time because I'm used to it being dark now. So we only have 40 minutes left. So if you have commentary, uh, you should get your hand up now. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, any folks who have a hand up that we have not heard from at all? Do we get everybody? We didn't miss anybody. Anybody uh, has a hand up that has not spoken at all? Grant, I will assume that we uh, got everyone uh, so far. Any of the folks uh, who are with us have additional commentary that they wanted to make sure uh, they include. Can I be heard? Uh, let's see. I heard two people. Uh, we'll get Ken Steele second. Uh, who is the other caller? I just heard two people, I thought. Maybe I didn't. Could be going uh, going bonkers. Was Mr. Steele one of the people who spoke? Yeah. That was definitely me. Proceed. Awesome. Um, I just wanted to say that um, one thing that I've noticed that's um, being pushed by uh, the suspected racist uh, this week um, is a character out of uh, California... Um, named uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, she's a suspected, or she's a victim of racism uh, that is being showcased uh, currently in her role as a senator. And I believe uh, she was recently um, showcased on the uh, Senate uh, Intelligence Committee hearing um, during the Comey investigation. They gave her. Um, a few uh, questions um, to ask the um, former uh, FBI director. I just wanted to say that uh, Kamala Harris, um, for victims of racism, um, I just want to let everybody know that um, she's being talked about as a potential uh, candidate for uh, the presidency. And uh, she would be um, another, um, I guess, uh, lighter-skinned, Ivy League-educated uh, um, victim of racism that is uh, being showcased, and I think is explicitly for the purposes of attracting um, non-white uh, voters. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, she is uh, currently uh, in a uh, tragic arrangement. Her husband is a uh, suspected white supremacist named Douglas Emhoff. And so uh, I, you know, I believe that um, she kept the uh, last name Harris um, so that she appears to be, uh, you know, uh, what some of her supporters are calling, uh, quote unquote, the real deal. 
so um you know she her last or rather her husband's last name um is Emhoff his name is Douglas Emhoff uh she uh was also a prosecuting attorney um during her time here in uh California and um she was uh, instrumental in um placing a number of uh victims of racism uh in greater confinement so um, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, a victim of racism, uh, currently being showcased by the uh, Democratic Party uh, to be a um, uh, potential candidate for uh, the office of the presidency. Another one of these uh, light-skinned Democrats is a person named uh, uh, Cory Booker, who is also in the uh, Senate seat, uh, or is in the Senate out of New Jersey. And just uh, before I get offline, it should be noted that uh, Donald Trump uh, and the Kushner family um, have personally donated money to um, Cory Booker's campaign to the tune of, I believe, $42,000 in his uh, most recent senatorial run. And uh, Donald Trump himself uh, uttered uh, or uh, sent out a tweet um, regarding Cory Booker that he knows more about Cory Booker than Cory Booker knows about himself. So uh, beware of some of these light-skinned Democrats that are, uh, that are, are um, being showcased by the Democratic Party and that are being positioned as potential candidates for uh, higher political office, including uh, President of the United States. So thank you so much, and I will mute my line at this time. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello, this is Red again. Um, just on the note of Kamala Harris, I think if I'm not mistaken, because I did listen to uh, Gwen Eiffel's The Breakthrough, I think she did actually mention uh, Kamala Harris, it, but definitely you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, another thing that I forgot to mention, um, just referring back to Dr. Um, Tommy uh, Curry's book, I had looked up the picture of the, the young black male on the book because the picture was familiar to me, but it was a little bit, um, I was a little bit confused about the full history, um, but the picture on the book is um, George Feeney um, Jr. And when I was looking up different um, stories about him on YouTube, just to get a better understanding of his history because I do remember he was, they say that he was one of the youngest people who was executed, um, at least in Texas or in the United States. One of the interviews that I found was there was an um, they were they, it was a brief interview um, that CNN conducted and they interviewed his sister and also the relatives of his quote-unquote victims and um, one of the main things that stuck out to me, which just definitely made me feel like his, the relatives of his quote unquote victims were definitely racist. I guess I could still say that they were suspected racist. They were saying that, um, and for anyone who doesn't know his victims, they said that, um, Mr. Uh, Steeny, I apologize for not pronouncing his name right, his last name right. They said that he killed two, um, young white women or two young white girls drug, drug their bodies and their bikes 
into a field after he savagely beat him to death, beat them to death. He was only uh, 14 years old, and he was put to get put to death by a um, Texas court. Well, when they had some of the relatives of the young white girls um, interviewed, the relative said, "Well, their family must also admit to their guilt, even though his um, his conviction was later overturned." Um, after, of course, they had put him to death, because if I'm not mistaken, they put him to death the same year that they convicted him. They said, well, oh, well, his family must also know that he did this horrible crime because they haven't even put up a um, a headstone or went to go visit the grave um, once he was put to death. But then they also, after these suspected racists said this thing, um, his sister also commented that she was there the same day that they had saw the two white girls. Um, and she had said, well, the reason why we didn't put up a, a headstone was because, you know, people could, people would have dug up his body and thrown him. I, I think she said maybe like in a river or what have you. So I definitely thought that it was definitely very reminiscent of, I think the book was blood at the root. You could definitely correct me if I'm wrong, where they actually used black people's headstones for, um, like, sidewalks or, um, like, for stoops for other white people's uh, homes after they took over this, uh, after they after white people took over the city. So it, it definitely lets you understand, it, it, it definitely helped um, for me to better understand the fact that, like, what was said in medical apartheid. And I definitely appreciate all the book studies and that are conducted on the show that white people, they just don't terrorize you from birth to death. It's also after death. Um, I just wanted to mention that. Thank you for allowing me to share again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was blood at the root that mentioned, uh, whites race soldiers in Forsyth County, Georgia, using black people's uh, headstones as uh, sidewalks to decorate their houses. Um, but George Stinney was in South Carolina. Ben Tillman, Dylan Roof, uh, he was executed in 1944. Uh, and I just remember that because they did a lot of, uh, they had a lot of uh, anniversaries and ceremonies around the uh, 70 year anniversary of his execution, which was uh, in 2000. 14, and they interviewed some of the quote-unquote white victims, uh, family members, relatives, and some of uh, George Stinney, the 14-year-old who was uh, lethally sentenced for this supposed crime. They interviewed both sets, and I remember some of the white family members in 2014 saying, oh yeah, he did it, you know, no doubt in my mind, niggas, you know, niggas and flies, always in something. That was basically the attitude that they had 70 years on, like, uh, I think I probably played some of that on the program. Uh, other folks uh, have commentary that they wanted to make sure they uh, get in. Have you heard? Let's get uh, the. Oh, actually, uh, I think we have uh, Princess with us. We hadn't heard from uh, her at all, and then we'll get the other folks also. Princess, uh, did you have commentary? Uh, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I apologize for the noise because I am en route to home because I'm just now getting off work. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to um, uh, state real quick, because I'm calling from Florida, 
Um, most of you may know that uh, they recently celebrated, well, remember the anniversary of this whole nightclub shooting. Um, it's been a big deal down here as far as the media coverage. And um, uh, I just uh, noted the difference um, from that versus the Charleston massacre, how it was on, well, you might as well say basically eclipsed um, as far as uh, coverage and uh, remembrance of the victims and stuff like that. So I purposely really didn't uh, share or want to talk about uh, the post-nightclub shooting because uh, just out of respect for the um, victims um, that continue to be uh, casualties in this ongoing conflict globally. But I also, um, if it would be okay with Seth, I just wanted to um, share a bit of a spoiler alert in regards to my workplace situation. Would that be okay? Oh, let's hear it. Okay. Um, yesterday I was off. Um, in the morning I received a call from corporate, um, the investigators, um, that I had been speaking to um, within the last week who I had requested to speak to someone else that I was dealing with in New Orleans when I was having the issues there. Um, I guess because of her workload or, uh, you know, she wasn't able to personally take on the case. So he um, reiterated that he would be assisting me. So I was writing down a note um, to make a long story short, um, Stated, I reiterated the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment to him. Um, throughout the conversation, it just seemed like he was trying to play devil's advocate, but I wasn't even trying to go there. Um, I, I have my documentation, my facts, and everything, and I just let him know, look, you know, I'm not going to be doing your work. Um, uh, like Mr. Fuller had basically told me, I should be doing very little talking at this point. So I wasn't going to put all my cards on the table as to um, the evidence that I have as to what took place as to why I, I was abruptly moved from this store um, to where I'm at now. And so uh, he basically, after um, getting some more information from me, um, it was about an hour-long interview, um, he had indicated that someone will be coming down um, to interview me because he said the areas of concern that he has and, um, just, uh, roughly stating that, um, he, he is concerned at the fact that this, uh, district manager asked me, was I the one that contacted corporate? And he was concerned at the fact, uh, that, um, I was moved and I wasn't given a permanent schedule. Um, they were trying to make it seem like I was hired as a floater when I never was. Uh, and, you know, that they was trying to basically make it seem like there was something in the paperwork that got mixed up or there was some misunderstanding. He said those were areas of high concern, and he stated that, you know, that I he knows that I'm aware of our policy. So from the tone of his voice as far as 
uh, what we had discussed, that that is what they're going to hone in on um, because, we, you know, they have an open-door policy. And like I told him, you know, most co- companies that have, you know, over a certain amount of employees, they have to abide by certain laws. So um, I am supposed to be meeting with somebody from corporate. I don't know when. So I've just been compiling all of my documentation and writing up uh, everything. Um, I have photos of different things from certain days. So I'll be getting copies of that to hand over to them if need be, depending, you know, on how things go. And um, I will just be keeping everything in my purse uh, so that way whoever comes in, I already have it, in, you know, ready. So I'm not caught off guard or anything, and I've just been looking at, looking over the uh, policy and procedures, you know, things that I would want to be asking them and compiling some questions that I have for them. Spectacular. Uh, That is always music to my ears when I hear uh, a black person saying they are reviewing their policy and procedure, not reading it for the first time, not overwhelmed by it, not confused, not I can't find it. I am reviewing my policy and procedure to help construct questions to ask. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Let us know uh, how it goes, what questions uh, you come up with and, you know, what the resolution. That's a great tip for Mr. Fuller as well, because that's what you want to strive for efficiency with your words so that you are not just talking and talking and talking and talking uh, where you can, you know, in very short order. You don't have buckets of words. You you just need like a saucer. <laughs> you got your few words and we are all good for the day. My questions. This is what it is. And how are we going to resolve the issue? Another question. Uh, appreciate that princess uh, I, see, I know we heard I had two people who spoke up before princess spoke uh, I think one was a female one was a male the female caller that spoke up just before princess we heard from princess did you have commentary ma'am uh, yeah I wanted to apologize for uh, breaking down like that I didn't that was so not cool of me but you know I apologize but um, I was listening to uh Dr. Tommy Curry's eighth uh, visit uh, to the Calvin. That was on the 16th, I believe, of September. And, um, you know, just trying to figure out this whole mental health thing. And I don't understand how we can have any sort of mental health. I remember when uh, Dr. Welsing's sister uh, was on. And she spoke about this book, um, Love Yourself, and let the other person have it your way. I mean, I got the book, I read the book, and it was somewhat helpful, but, you know, not completely, because this is a a white person giving information, not to say that they don't have information, because they do. But um, a lot of it centered on, like, not just loving yourself, but like forgiving. And I'm, 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 I'm having a difficult time with that when I'm listening to Dr. Curry and hearing all of the stuff that's happening and continues to happen to us as a people, especially to black males. And then having a book 
to love yourself and to try to gain some sort of mental health. And it talks about forgiving. And I, I, I don't know where I stand on that whole forgiveness thing. And, you know, you, you learn about, you know, being self-aware. You try to get some awareness and consciousness. And then, you know, you hear get books and they talk about your ego. And then you're looking at, but they want you to look at the ego of the person who is causing your oppression. And, and even in that, you need to forgive because it's not the person, it's the ego. So how, how, do, how do you line that up with your black self and trying to gain your, 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 your sense of sanity and still try to figure out how to solve the problem of your, your abuse? I, I I get confused with the whole loving yourself, mental health, trying to forgive. I don't know if that's even a possibility, really. And uh, the question about whether or not there'll be supremacy if there were no white people, I believe there will be. Um, it's all over. It's it's global. So that I mean, there's so many things that have to change before that can. Before that would, would change, I mean, just looking at South Korea, the biggest plastic surgery facility in the world. And when you speak to uh, different Asians, they talk about what their perception of beauty is, and it's white. And they change their features to look more white because they feel that they're going to gain a better position. So, yeah, if they're not here, it's still in, we're still infected by it. So how, what do you do to make it stop? Do you, because there's so much confusion, so much division, and I know I'm, I'm all over the place with this, but um, they've caused so much division with, with non-white people. I mean, for me, there's only two people on the planet, although Mr. Fuller says there's three, non-white people, white people, and white supremacists. I personally think there's only two, white and black. But they've got us so confused and so separated that Asian people think they're not black, but they are. But, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm rambling. So, all right, I'm good. I'm good. Hopefully I'll get my thoughts together, and uh, next time I'll be able to be a little more concise and a little more efficient. So thanks for listening. Yes, ma'am. We are all still learning. Uh, the male who spoke up simultaneously, uh, did you have commentary you were going to add as well? Uh, yes, sir. Um, and maybe I can get your thoughts or reactions, uh, you know, just for some kind of confirmation. But uh, I had realized, uh, because I was hanging around white people uh, so much and so involved, that... Uh, I began to become uh, what they would say asexual. Um, I began to, uh, uh, to believe wholeheartedly in things like abor- abortion, and you know, I would talk about you know, even to the point of uh, of receiving a vasectomy. I was taking, I was taking my, I guess, I was taking it out on my own biology. Um, I started my health started to dwindle. I was losing weight. You know, I was like turning green. My pigment was changing. You know, it was just unhealthy. Um, happy to say now, you know, I'm with I'm with a, a black woman. Have been for a while, um, but um, 
it really affected me in my thinking to a point where uh, I just did not realize it. Um, I know you speak of uh, Dr. Francis Quest Welsing uh, quite a bit, and I was just wanting to see if I, if uh, you had any thoughts or reaction as to why I may have been feeling that way. And I will uh, mute my phone. Uh, I would have to hear more detail, but if I was just going to give uh, a quick thought, uh, I know Mr. Fuller, when uh, he spoke about the epitome of white supremacy, he said he would pick someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, that that is the point of racism. White supremacy is to totally uh, to not just kill you, uh, call you nigger a few times, but to totally uh, destroy you uh, and to uh, completely destroy your sexuality as well. Uh, he talked about with that with Jeffrey Dahmer, and he even related that to uh, the history of uh, castrating uh, genital mutilation uh, against black males. Uh, this George Denny, uh, lots of uh, examples. Emmett Till, lots of examples uh, of this sort of behavior. Uh, being carried out the case that was mentioned earlier about the texting incident where the black male ended up being prosecuted, uh, where this happens pretty uh, consistently uh, to totally, Dr. Welsing talked about that as well, uh, to totally destroy uh, the sexuality, particularly of black males. Uh, so that's what it sounds like it could be to me. Obviously, I would need more detail. That's just given a, a brief opinion, but, you know, uh, I'm sure... Uh, with some even probably just you reflecting on it yourself I'm sure you could take some time that's the sort of thing why I encourage journaling uh, where you can kind of reflect uh, you can go over a lot of those details and really think about it because you can probably give a better better analysis because you have more of the details than anybody else here uh, other folks that we have not heard from if you have comments here we have uh, less than 15 minutes left in the broadcast so you should speak up if you think you have commentary have you heard? Never. Oh, maybe uh, first. Go ahead. Right on. Okay. All right. Thank you. I'll, I'll make this real quick. Just, you know, uh, was a young man before before me that was talked about, you know, hanging out with white people. And, um, you know, basically, it almost, you know, I remember one time I called your show and you had Dr. Rice, Rice Ion or Nice Ion on. And he was, I was asking him something about, like, you know, at this time, you know, where they would have the protests for the, like, the police shooting black people, like, say, like, Mike Brown. And I was, my question was, I was wondering what it is about, yeah, these protests and, like, white people run out to be a part of this. And he said something about parasitic vampires. I remember he told me, he said, look up parasitic vampires. So just listening to this gentleman right before me, it, and it just, like you said, it's like fucking your life out of you. But this is what I wanted to say, this, just for what he was saying, and it made me think of something. And I guess maybe this is something that, that I don't know if you may notice it or hear people talk about it. You might want to say, uh, make a comment. I don't know. It's just like a couple of weeks ago, I was just thinking about, you know, just life and about when you like we work with white people or around white people. And it just seemed that it is something about white people that, that in, and this is just a general statement, in black people, it seems to disconnect our like warning signals. And, and it, it made me think of, you, um, I'm older than you are, and so you, you may not know this, but there used to be a show on TV called Lost in Space, and it was about this family. They were supposed oh, to be lost okay. in space. Yeah, Mom said she was, okay. um, she was going to sit aside from... 
People are talking on the background. Say again, if you're... No, there's noise. Use your mute button. Much obliged. My apologies. Okay, thank you. So, and, and on this show, like I said, it's a family, and they were lost in space. And so they was, it was a, like a mother and a father, and you had a daughter and a son, and there was a professor. I think it was a couple other people with them. But they had this robot. And any time they were, like, out on this planet and, and say danger come, the robot would, like, danger, danger, warning, warning, danger, danger. And then if it was really dangerous, the, the robot would, would light up, the head would light up, and just start moving its arm. Danger, danger, you know, warning, warning, danger. And I was just thinking, I said, and I said, because it seems like to me that we are created with a warning guide, if you will. And I was just thinking, I said, it's something about, white people, that black people, when we get around them or they come around us, it almost like that is just dis, it's like it's disarmed. And unfortunately, it, it can lead to tragic results. Even with something like what this gentleman was just just talking about, that being around them, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I become asexual. I, you know, got a vasectomy. I don't know if you said that, but I mean, it's almost to a point of getting a vasectomy. And just crazy. He even said that, you know, I start losing weight. My skin starts turning green. I mean, that's, that's, that's almost like a slow, what you say, the parasitic vampire death. And I mean, I don't know if anybody else has experienced that. So I'm just kind of like throw that out because since he said that, and it just made me think of that. And it just, like I say, it's just like that, that, that warning died in us. If they come around us or we come around, and I know, that is all a part of this, this savage system that we have, uh, uh, that, that we, we've been existing in, you know, for uh, hundreds, hundreds of years, you know. And I, I just wanted to put that out there to see if anybody have any comment or does it make sense? Does it sound like that? Or it just maybe could be me. But anyway, I'll read my line. Thank you for taking my call. Appreciate that. Uh, retired firefighter, did you have commentary you were going to add, sir? Yes, sir. I was going to uh, comment on the uh, the caller who asked the question about, uh, quote unquote, uh, white people no longer existing. And the question he was asking if there would still be uh, something that is called white supremacy. Uh, uh, this victim uh, asked this question uh, on Mr. Fuller's program uh Wednesday, and uh, basically, if uh, if I can attempt to give a logical uh, answer, uh, I'm I'm going to attempt to. Uh, uh, first of all, white people, uh, people who call themselves white, is not a biological construct. So I don't know what that I don't know exactly what that means from the standpoint of white people eliminating themselves. I, I don't know what that means from a, from a, biolo- from a, from a uh, uh, biological construct. I know what it means for people to, to die off or for whatever reasons or become extinct. That is possible. But, but in terms of something that is not a biological construct, which is uh, what people call themselves white, it's a political one. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I hope I'm making some sense on what I'm saying. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense. The only thing I do know uh, uh, is, is theoretically, if there is such thing as he's, as he's suggesting, uh, there would 
probably not be something called white supremacy, but it definitely would be something that probably have to be named mass confusion uh, out of the people, the non-white quote unquote people who are, who are left on planet earth until uh, uh, we can uh, possibly uh, fix our uh, uh, psychological, mental, and physical situations that was uh, attributed to the global system of racism, white supremacy. It would be mass confusion in that process if they just stopped uh, uh, operating the machinery, put it that way. Uh, it'd be very few uh, uh, medical uh, 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 help that would be going on because there's not enough non-white people who uh, are skilled in that in that uh, environment versus so many sick people and so on and so forth down the road. The trains will stop, you know, for the most part, uh, because not that many of us uh, uh, shipping and whatever that takes place uh, transportation wise in order to bring about food and and uh, you know things that are vital to uh, living. Uh, matter of fact, we would be in dire jeopardy uh, if something like that actually did take, take place, but I would put caution originally on what I stated by to remind this person who's a, who I assume is a non-white victim of racist white supremacy that, that uh, uh, racism or white people is a political construct, not a biological one. So I don't, I don't know what that means for quote unquote white people to uh, go extinct biologically i don't i don't know what that means hopefully i'm making sense thank you appreciate that retired firefighter uh we have about five minutes left uh folks have any final comments they want to get in last few moments uh you should uh take advantage go ahead and speak now can i be heard yes sir hi uh this is the voice again um i wanted to touch on um what ken still was saying about kamala harris and um, it's funny that he brought that up because when I was at work earlier today, I got a call from a local politician that I have been running with for a, like a year and a half now. And she called me up and asked me if I wanted to um, get the seat of the Jamaican Democratic Caucus here in um, Florida. So I told her, you know, I'll take it. Um, so I'm supposed to be aligned up to um, get that seat. And she said that she was going to um, align me up to meet uh, Ms. Kamala Harris, as well as um, another representative named Andrew Gillum, who is a phenomenal um, black mayor of Tallahassee who's running against um, Rick Scott for the governor's seat. So there's a lot of things that's going to align down here, and uh, I feel pretty good about it. Um, I wanted to talk about... Um, I read an article about the, the um, non-black Hispanic male that got killed by the suspected white supremacist and his uh, his wife, um, Johnny Hernandez. Uh, there was an article that stated um, the L-U-L-A-C, which is the Hispanic version of um, the NWACP. And they in the article, at the end of the article, they end up writing saying that the killing of Johnny Hernandez being choked out by, by this white supremacist was a lynching, and they were calling for the actions of black people to join forces with them. 
and I found them using the word lynching to be very odd and and quite disrespectful in a way, if you ask me. But um, that's pretty much what I wanted to say. And Abimala. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I just wanted to follow up with uh, the statements that I was making last week regarding uh, gun ownership and um, these gun licenses that they are uh, encouraging victims of uh, racism to purchase. Um, there was a victim of racism that was recently killed. Um, that was recently killed um, when defending his home uh, against an uh, attacker with a gun. What had happened was uh, he, uh, I guess this uh, took place in Ohio, and um, the victim's name was uh, Brendan Hester. Apparently, uh, somebody came and was attacking his family, and then he had the um, perpetrator uh, held at gunpoint, and they were waiting for the um, police to show up. Uh, The police showed up and then uh, shot uh, Brendan Hester. So even in your home with a personal defense weapon, uh, PDW, as they're referred to, um, you can, uh, you as a victim of racism are exposing yourself to a tremendous amount of danger and trouble um, when you have a gun in your hands um, uh, in this system of racism, white supremacy. Um, unless if you are willing to um, shoot it out with uh, the uh, authority figures and uh, fight to the death, um, uh, you know, uh, presenting yourself with a firearm uh, can uh, make you eligible for immediate uh, termination or immediate uh, um uh, submittance to greater confinement. So um, be very careful when it comes to these firearms. Be c- very careful when it comes to registering for uh, these uh, gun permits. You are putting yourself on a list uh, that says that you own firearms. So uh, I, I strongly caution against letting uh, suspected racists know that you are armed and that you are carrying. This is uh, counter to your safety. So um, please be very careful around guns. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same, I guess the same suggestion or the same thing that I say when people talk about uh, it being dangerous to address racism, white supremacy, uh, race soldiers kill a lot of black people who have nothing to say about racism. I think the same would apply to gun ownership. Uh, They certainly kill, terrorize, and place in greater confinement a huge number of black people who are unarmed. But certainly, point well taken about be cautious, be codified, uh, be very serious uh, if you're going to own firearms uh, because a lot of times racists can make a lot more trouble for us uh, with their their weapons their guns Uh, with that that is our three hours Uh, we will be here Uh, we got lots of promotions for workplace racism uh, throughout the course of the broadcast today thursdays 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific Uh, we'll be here for that Uh, i think this week uh, will be the third sunday let me look at the calendar double check it yep 
Uh, so third Sunday will be not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, third Sunday. So that'll be our global Sunday talk on racism. They just had the big election uh, in England. Theresa May won, but uh, she took a beating uh, in the election. Her party lost a lot of political power. Uh, I think Stacey was even talking about uh, she didn't vote for Theresa May on workplace racism uh, a couple days ago. Uh, we'll review that as well as uh, a lot of other things that have taken place globally. Uh, that'll be uh, a week from tomorrow uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Pacific, you can check the Black Talk Radio Network page uh, as well as the Facebook group for our upcoming broadcasts. Uh, with that, thanks for everyone tuning in. I hope the compensatory call in was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, we will be back soon. If you have a question, uh, if you are trying to find something in the archives, someone just emailed about previous times we talked about George Stinney on the cows. If you're looking for something in the archives and can't find it, you can drop an email. If you have a guest suggestion or idea for uh, a broadcast gripe, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, as I've stated consistently, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I know it is great. It was beautiful. It wasn't even super warm today, but it was still sunny. Wonderful. Uh, I sat outside quite a bit earlier in the day. Uh, even if you're doing all that, you still want to remain codified. Uh, sobriety would be best. You do not want to be out getting your sunshine on and then be confronted with a race soldier badge or no and have to use words, think correctly, make great decisions to protect, save your life or to stay out of greater confinement. You don't want to have to do that after you've had a little bit to drink or whatever else, any other narcotics. That is not going to help your situation. War is being waged against us. That should be reflected in our behavior at all times. And I think there is a sizable amount of evidence that non-white people, black people in particular, being under the influence of all of these substances has not helped us replace white supremacy with justice. If anything, it seems to make white people better able to dominate and terrorize us. So keep that in mind and maybe we could save our nickels uh, as well. Sobriety would be best. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.